Folks, it's uh, part two of the Titanic episode. If you haven't listened to part one, you should probably go back and listen to that part of the episode. I'll put a link in the description. Anyway, this is the exciting conclusion to our Titanic episode. So, you know, by midnight, you know, even before Smith got the news that Titanic would sink, he ordered the lifeboats prepared and swung out. Um, they would have to do a bunch of stuff to prepare the boats. Um, mm. Is this when he said women and children first? Uh, not yet. Okay. I think. I think. Um, but, you know, in order to prep the boats, they had to remove canvas covers. They had to untie a bunch of shit. They had to, you know, they take off these chains, they had to move these railings that were guarding the boats, they had to prepare the ropes, they had to, you know, they had to, uh, on, they would have had to get, mess with the oars and the sails and stuff that were in the boats, they would have had yeah, to... Yeah, it's a pain in the ass. Yeah. And you're cold, and you're scared, presumably. Yeah. yeah, and on top of that, they would have had to undo the chocks, they, they had to raise the boats a bit, they had to crank these davits with these big crank handles, and that's a slow process because there was a screw, and you can kind of see how they would work in that in that bottom picture. And uh, um, you know, it's uh, fortunate that this was a relatively slow sinking. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. mm. yeah, what and, a terrifying uh, thought, Jesus Christ! And that's a, uh, it's my belief and the belief of many others in the Titanic world that even if Titanic hadn't it had, uh, you know, if it had more lifeboats, it wouldn't have done any good because. Uh, Can't get people into them. Yeah, I mean, because they they didn't really start taking taking them off the ship until about an hour into the sinking, and they didn't even finish getting the last two boats off the ship before it went under. Uh, More boats would have probably just hindered them. That would have been slower. Uh, they would My question is: is how much of that was just due to this sort of like thinking that like, oh, the ship is itself the lifeboat? I mean, mm. it definitely. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of people, a lot of passengers saw Titanic as the safer bet. They didn't take it seriously that it was sinking or realize yeah, it until I, later. I wouldn't want to get into like this rickety collapsible boat either. Like, yeah, if it's real calm ocean though. You know, you figure. Even uh, probably, so, man, probably not gonna. Mm. You know, the worst, the worst case scenario is they lower you into the ocean, and then you're like, "Oh, ship didn't sink. All right, pull us back up." <laughs> I guess. So. Yeah, this is why you would survive the Titanic, and I might not. Yeah. Um, one other thing about the boats is each of them had like a little hole in the bottom with a plug, uh, so they could drain. You know, if they're just sitting there on the deck, and before they were lowered, they had to put the plugs in place and. In one or two cases, they forgot to, and it was like, "Oh crap, it's flooding." We had to, they had to rush to get the plug in. Um, you know, it was around two fifty, twelve fifteen a.m. that the band started playing. Famously, the uh, Titanic hmm. had eight musicians aboard, uh, a five-piece and three-piece ensembles. Um, they play at various places around the ship. 
uh, mainly like the reception room, uh, which is essentially like not a ballroom at all. Like Titanic didn't have a ballroom, but um, you know, people gathered there before and after dinner, and you know, they listened to concerts. Um, around twelve fifteen to twelve twenty a.m., uh, the band members began playing music. Uh, minutes after that, they were spotted walking up the forward. Uh, or minutes before that, they were spotted walking up the forward uh, grand staircase with their instruments. Um, do we know what they were playing? Just like uh, sort of happy music. Yeah, mostly happy music and everybody all that. Re- remain calm, sweet, and E minor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even late. Yeah, even later on, it was like um, very cheery music. Um, you know, we don't know why they started playing. Maybe they were requested by the captain or purser to keep people calm. We don't know. Um, at first they may have played in the first class lounge or somewhere else. Um, the myth has them standing out on the boat deck playing their music, but I mean, it was cold out and dark and, uh, you know, they would have had to retune their instruments. It's possible that they were playing on the top level of the grand staircase where the piano was in the bottom right picture. So unfortunately, they started playing a uh, four-four string ostinato in D minor, which mm. every sailor knows means death. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny that like uh, sailors have a fifty billion uh, like superstitions about what means death, and they're all right. <laughs> Happens a lot. Like if man. they were just nonsense, I could just write it off. But no, every time something goes wrong, they can always find some infraction of superstition, and it always makes sense. I'm always like, oh uh, yeah, that's why. <laughs> um, you know, it's been argued that the band may have contributed to the lack of passengers being in boats. You know, that they're lulled into yeah, a false sense of faster. security. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it's the it, you know, if there was a panic, that could have also been deadly. Um, yeah, sort of a series of bad choices. World shit. Yeah. Mm. Um. Next slide. Uh, by 12.20 a.m., the bow had sunk so, so low that the portholes, which used to be about 20, 20 feet above the water, were now just submerging. Um, I need- Getting into that like feedback loop of stuff that makes it sink faster, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, on E deck forward, Seaman John Poindexter was in his quarters putting his. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, okay. <laughs> he was in his quarters putting his boots on when a wooden wall caved in and a wall of water flooded up three feet deep. No fucking uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, he quickly escaped and went back on deck. Um, up to this point, Titanic had still had its two degree list port, but because of the collision, it suddenly you know it started listing to starboard uh, by about five degrees. Um, this list- really ruins your squash game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the, the port, li- you know, the list didn't last too long as the ship settled later in the sinking, it leveled off and then it went back to port at an even greater angle. Um, this is where- like that. Now this is, it's been argued that the port list from the coal fire may have actually saved Titanic from capsizing. Like you notice when ships sink, they tend to capsize. Like they just don't stay upright. Um, you know, once your once your buoyancy is lost, your stability is going to crap. Um, apparently, I think I'm not. Don't quote me on this, but I think in some modern simulations, Titanic kept capsizing as it flooded. But when they factored in the port list, uh, it didn't capsize. Hmm. We'll never, we'll never know for sure. 
But, you know, it is possible that maybe that port list did give Titanic more time, but who knows? Um, at 12.25, you know, a meeting was held between Thomas oh, Andrews and Smith. <laughs> um, you know, Andrews was seen rushing up the grand staircase with a look of terror on his face around 12.22. And, you know, <laughs> at that point, he was heading is to that Smith. good? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he had just finished his damage inspection. It's and, fucked. Um, Get off. Yeah, yeah it's fucked. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he basically told Smith that. <laughs> Maybe not those words, but yeah. you know. Five, Could have been. With just the five compartments flooded, water was uh, to spill over the bulkheads further back, and we all have seen the movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, the boat sinks. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to be reductive uh, about it, it's one slide. It's about to say, spoiler alert. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Much like the movie, we have taken our sweet time getting there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Kevin Kevin Costner has to like swim through some like underwater passages in order to rescue Whitney Houston. I've seen the movie. <laughs> seen the movie. Seen the movie. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Andrews calculated that Titanic had an hour, maybe an hour and a half, at most. Um, you know, Smith must have been shocked because you know, again. They thought of ships as uh, lifeboats, you know, yeah. Unsinkable. Yep. Or, or at the very least, it would take many hours to sink and enough time for other ships to get there. Not this, not this time. Um, mm. Immediately after he found out that the ship was going down for sure from Andrews, Smith gave the order to put women and children into the lifeboats, um, which was apparently the order was apparently overheard by the aforementioned John Poindexter as he's came about back up on deck. <laughs> but crucially, we get a bit of a game of telephone between the officers here, because Lightoller, the biggest dickhead in the world, but also kind of maybe, you know, surprisingly competent, hears women and children first as women and children only. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's... So yeah, that's the two directions it went in. Like, either, you know, you were Lightoller and you were like, no men at all. Yeah, I will um, pull uh, one of the pistols that uh, you know officers carry for some fucking reason on a cruise ship in order to like encourage you back from the boats. Alice, kind of vibe. Alice, it's an ocean liner, not a cruise ship. That's a good point. <laughs> Damn yeah. you! Yeah, yeah, cancelled. You so you sounded so wounded. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Very different. Uh, ocean uh, a cruise ship is like a big fat blob compared to this. Mm. <laughs> the uh, the the actual difference though is that uh, ocean liners are literally they operate on the lines across the ocean or you know, between different destinations to haul people back and forth. Whereas a cruise ship just goes around in circles for fun. <laughs> um, and today there's only one cruise, uh, one ocean liner left, and that's the Queen Mary two. So, um, yeah, you know, in in Murdoch's case, he was like, yeah, men can get on, but. Only after like the nearby women and children on the boat first, for the most part. Um, yeah, but we also had a lot of like sort of self-selecting stuff where a lot of men just didn't get in the boats because they were trying to like save space for women and children who weren't there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that was a very common thing. Like, even if they were offered spaces in the boats, men were like, "No, I'm not going to take the space." At twelve twenty-seven, you know, and now knowing that the. Uh, ship was doomed, you know, Smith immediately went to the Marconi suite to tell Jack Phillips and Harold Bride to begin sending out the regulation call for help. 
you know, Phillips took over the wireless key and began tapping out CQD, 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 MGY. MGY was Titanic's uh, radio identifier. And then crucially, uh, his compatriot says, why don't you send that new distress signal, because it might be your only chance. And so he hammers out SOS. And they, yeah, that uh, that happens sometime later, I think. Um, what is uh, CQD for? It's exactly uh, the same thing. It's another pro sign for like uh, you know help, but uh, I don't know. Oh. I think they found SOS more distinguishable. Well, uh, it's right here in my notes. Uh, so CQD, uh, you know, a lot of people assume it means come quickly to stress, but uh, actually CQ was a standard wireless code to get the attention of all stations in range, while D meant distress, therefore it meant all stations distress. Hmm. Ah. You know, 1227, that's when the first CQD is sent out. Um, they included uh, the ship's position, that was calculated by Smith, but this is off by 20 miles. Oops. Um, you know, Cape Race uh, immediately received the calls, as did several other ships. Um, by t- by twelve uh, thirty seven, ten minutes later, Boxhall had done his own calculations of Titanic's position, which are a lot more accurate, and they started sending that out. Um, which was forty one degrees forty six uh, north, fifty degrees fourteen west. Yeah, at twelve at twelve thirty eight, Phillips tapped out the message: "Require immediate assistance. We have collision with iceberg sinking. Can hear nothing for noise of steam." Um. Sounds hellish. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty bad. So, you know, the Carpathia answered the distress distress call and, uh, you know, told Titanic she'd be able to get there in four hours, um, which is obviously well beyond Titanic's expected time to float. Captain Rostron of uh, Carpathia, he immediately ordered the ship to steam full head as fast as she could go towards Titanic's position. He ordered the entire ship to get ready. He, the whole crew just went to work doing what they could prepare um meanwhile back in titanic chaos chaos pandemonium not yet uh, we're gonna get there don't worry in about three hours we'll get to- <laughs> <Hopefully not. laughs> such a slow moving disaster yes that's the thing that's why it's so famous because it just took so much time to play out that all this stuff happened mm. titanic is a story of it, it's character driven like you can't really talk about the raw events without talking about the people. Also, because I think it like harkens back to an earlier ideal of masculinity, one of like uh, women and children first, one of like going down with the ship, things yeah. like that. Yeah. Like all shipwrecks are kind of morality tales to a certain extent, and this mm. one is like one that would be used in a lot of like uh, sort of like cultural phenomena, including by the Nazis. Yep. Oh, yeah. But we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Hopefully in, in about four hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I am so sorry, Liam. All right. So it's all good. Uh, just in the event we actually go to four hours, I have to log off at four. Yeah, just leave. Right. Just you, book don't need, it. you don't need to rush. And if you need to go past four, I'm just telling you that I can. No, rush. Rush. Yeah. Oh, God. I just saw my recording hit three hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'll happen. The right, thing about go, the Titanic go, go. is it's a slow-moving episode. Go, <laughs> well, go, go. we've officially we've officially gone past the two-hour, forty-minute time that Titanic took to sink. <laughs> That's because nice. we have more watertight bulkheads. Yes. Uh so you know, 
<clears throat> passengers on deck, you know, once the lifeboats were prepared and swung out and the crew got to work, you know, trying to get everyone to get the heck into these things. Um, you know, in the lounge, first class passenger Edith Rosenbaum was told by someone that Titanic is entirely unsinkable. And then right after that, a deck officer came in and called out women and children will kindly proceed to the boat deck. Women and children <laughs> only. This had to be light taller. Oh, yeah, it has to be. <laughs> Such a martinet, too. <laughs> uh, stewards all over, stewards and stewardesses all over. You know, they went around banging on doors because, again, no alarms. That's the only way you get people to, you know, know that something's happening. You, you, could, you could still be asleep until like a wall of water just comes and drowns you, which is uh, horrifying. Yeah. Um, you know, passengers began gathering on the boat deck, uh, dressed warmly, some not so much. Andrews himself <coughs> rushed to, a, uh, you know, to and fro to assist passengers in getting ready to go up on deck. He encouraged several stewardesses to put on life belts. You know, I, I think it's safe to say that as chief designer of Titanic at that point, Andrews probably felt a personal responsibility to these people. Mm. Um, but he also you know, knew it was doomed. Like, right. yeah. yeah. In third class, the evacuation was less good. Uh, some passengers were literally chased out of their quarters by water. Um, some had no idea where to go. Uh, they went up or aft. In the third class smoking room under the poop deck, some passengers on, 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 in the stern gathered in there when a group of, quote, Italians uh, <laughs> arrived with their belongings. And they were, in quote, acting crazy, crying and jumping. Um Okay. Okay. Between the between the language, so doing normally Italian stuff. Yeah, <laughs> they arrived <laughs> Italianly. Yeah, they're all making gestures with their hands and <laughs> pizza frappuccino. Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> then we're canceled. Yeah. Uh, between the language barrier and the common derision of Italians at the time, where well, people perceived to be Italians, you know, they were openly mocked by the passengers and even the crew. Yeah, like, just like that. Yeah, the crew even like forced them to take their life belts off when they refused. Uh, you know, asserting that nothing was wrong. Um, Fifth Officer Lowe was, you know, helping people get into the lifeboats. You know, he had been asleep after the collision, even failing to wake up when Boxhall had tried to wake him. Uh, he woke up hearing commotion in the officer's quarters. He looked out his door and he just saw women in there wearing life belts. Like, this is weird. So, you know, something was up. So he got to work to, you know, Mm. So, you know, Lowe later returned to his cabin to grab his personal revolver. You know, he knew things were getting serious. So, you know, just in case. Meanwhile, you know, Light Taller was rushing around trying to get the boats prepared. You know, he asked for uh, Smith permission to swing the boats out, uh, you know, which is granted. Then he asked Smith, hadn't we better get the women and children into the boats, sir? Yes, he said. So, you know, the Smith, you know, he said, yeah, put the women and children into the boats and lower away. Um, below decks, you know, stewards had trouble getting many passengers to even believe anything had serious had happened. Uh, you know, the ship was unsinkable. It's cold. Why? Do, why would you worry about it? Hmm. You know, by twelve thirty, they, you know, they, you know, they, they were well into loading boats, or at least starting to. You know, over and over as the night wore on, you know, people gradually they started parting with their families and their husbands and. And all that, but yeah, uh, a lot of guys yeah. putting their wives in the boats and then just being like, "Yeah, don't worry about it. I'll be fine." Mm -hmm. And it's it's yeah. always debatable whether like how many of them like knew they were gonna die, but like at least some. Yeah, well, I mean, like you know, Ida Strauss when she was offered a place in the boat, 
you know, she she said, no, I will not be separated from my husband as we have lived. So will we die together? Yeah, they went um, back to their cabin and they died together. Yeah, and Isidore, somebody had suggested that Isidore would uh, should maybe get on the boat because he was old. And he said, no, I do not wish any distinction in my favor, which is not granted to others. Supposedly, anyway, you know, this is all recollections survivors. Yeah. And of course, there's always this tendency to like burnish this stuff. You don't want to talk about, uh, oh, yeah, I said, do you want to get on the boat? And the guy pissed himself. But yeah. like, at the same time, it do- it really does seem like there is some sort of nobility here, which is just a thing you see in all disasters. And that's something we don't really talk about much, I think. And maybe we should is that like you do sometimes really do see people at their best in these sort of situations. As we saw in Bo Paul, like we've mentioned, mm, yeah. best oh, yeah. and worst. Absolutely. I want to be very clear that if this were happening to me, uh, I would go full linebacker, mowing down <laughs> women and children. <laughs> well, there, there were famously like this. This is another myth because it got greatly exaggerated. But there were lots of cases of disguising uh, like older boys or younger men as women, or yep. them disguising themselves. Uh, listen, which listen. is which has been my long game the whole time. To, so that if I'm <laughs> if I'm ever on a sinking ship, I can get on the lifeboat. Uh, if you ever see if you ever see me throwing women and children overboard, mind your business. You wind <laughs> up in a sort of affirmative action situation with everyone. We want we want um we want uh people of marginalized yeah, P- genders P-O-C- to the boats. <laughs> P- P- yeah, POC first. Um, <laughs> transgender people. Uh, let me get a. <laughs> oh my god! Indigenous yes. people. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I mean, you know, you could. Yeah, you know, women and children float very well, so you could use them as a raft. <laughs> I want black trans women first in the lifeboats. Right. <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, quick side note is that uh, the Strausses actually didn't go back to their cabin. Um, they stayed up on deck and mm. grabbed some deck chairs. Oh, still romantic but though. Even you know, so Titanic had this weird design difference with Olympic. Olympic had this. Uh, the A-deck promenade was open all the way along. You kind of see in the um, top left photo here that you know, you've got these smaller windows, and then further back, it's more open. Um, but So Titanic had these windows installed in a big screen uh, on the forward end of the promenade. The original intention was to lower the lifeboats down to A-deck and load them from there. That's a hmm. problem when you have glass windows in the way that can only be opened by a crank that you have to send crew to find somewhere. Whoa. <laughs> Sorry. So, I got really excited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, boat number four was lowered to a deck uh, when they realized that they needed to send crew to get one of those keys for the windows. So boat four just hung there for most of the sinking. Uh- <laughs> Embarrassing. On the starboard side forward, it was noted that the job of prepping the boats was going slowly, and that there were there were very few officers or crew around, and the ones who were there seemed unfamiliar with the process of prepping the boats. Um, so you know, by twelve forty, Lytol had decided to move to boat six. You know, forget four, and um, you know, Murdoch on the other side was working on boat seven. He had a hard time getting people in a boat because they just didn't take the situation seriously. Uh, most are treating it as a kind of joke. Epic prank, brackets, <laughs> goes wrong. <laughs> you know, Stuart Henry etches, you know, he was helping with Boat 7 <clears throat> when he noticed millionaire Benjamin Guggenheim and his valet, Victor Giglio. Uh, they were dressed in her evening wear. Uh, 
And, you know, when Etches saw them, you know, he basically he he asked, what's this for? And, uh, you know, Guggenheim famously replied, we've dressed up in our best and are prepared to go down as gentlemen. By the way, create an art museum for me and put in a mm. giant modernist building. Yes. Perhaps several. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Guggenheim then told Etches, if anything should happen to me, tell my wife in New York that I've done my best in doing my duty. Um, then he walked off to help passengers into boats seven and five. At another point, Guggenheim stopped another steward, apparently, and told him to tell his wife that I played the game straight to the end, that no woman was left on board this ship because Ben Guggenheim was a coward. Tell her that my last Man. thoughts will be of her okay, and her girls. Guy, okay. Take one yeah. set of last words and then <laughs> fucking leave you it. Can't do that. That's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> He's just going around dictating his like last thoughts to everybody. He's like stopping them, <laughs> grabbing them by the collar. Listen, Ben Guggenheim loved his fucking wife, okay? Trying to, trying to uh, break into the, uh, the, the Marconi Marconi device room so he can send <laughs> off some last telegraphs. <laughs> and tell them, tell them as he's as he's going down, lungs filling with water. Tell them my schlong. It was big. <laughs> my, my wife, stop. And bearing in mind, those are just the people that survived. He could have went around to like ten different people and told oh, them. Hell yeah, dead. Just yeah. increase your odds. Yeah. One of these dumb assholes is gonna make it off the boat. <laughs> Uh, apparently Guggenheim lit a cigar after that, and he just, uh, walked back up the deck to help with boats yeah, more. While, while shouting to everyone in reach about how much he loved his wife. Uh, oops, I dropped my mo magnum condom for my monster <laughs> dog. <laughs> Listen, tell anybody who survives, Ben Guggenheim, massive penis. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the madness has set in now. Yeah, we're in hour yeah, three. Hour three oh. Yeah. oh, uh, <laughs> as boat number five was being loaded, a man in a pajama robe and slippers began encouraging third officer Pittman to get the women and children into the boats as there was no time to lose. At first, Pittman no time to lose. At first, Pittman dismissed the man, and then he realized that it was likely J. Bruce Ismay. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Would you recognize your boss in a dressing gown? <laughs> Uh, my uh, boss Pitt is basically Roz, so... Yeah. 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 <laughs> Pittman went to the bridge to mention this to Smith and asked about lowering the boat, and Smith just said, go ahead, carry on. Before 1 a.m., crew began preparing the aft starboard lifeboats to be launched. Um, quick aside is that the lifeboats on Titanic were divided into four groups. Uh, you know, there was a group forward on the starboard. Yeah, left libertarian, left authoritarian, mm -hmm. yeah. right authoritarian, yeah, right libertarian. Yes. The the right libertarian boats only had kids in them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, ooh, I lost my place. Okay, yeah. Uh, you know, Light Toller was focusing on preparing the lifeboats six and eight, and Wild was helping load them. Uh, you know, lifeboat six, as that was being loaded, uh, Margaret Brown, Molly, you know, escorts uh, uh, a passenger named Bertha Maine to the boat and helps her get in, and Brown, having not intended to get in herself, begins to walk off, you know, to see what's happening elsewhere, and then an officer grabs her and is like, you're going to, and just drops her in the lifeboat. Uh, patriarchy. <laughs> I'm gonna pick up this woman and yeah. place her in the <laughs> lifeboat. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, second officer, Lightoller, you know, he continues the low boat six, uh, he found it difficult to get, you know, like, like, like Murdoch, to find passengers who were willing to board. Um, they just thought Titanic was a safer bet. Um, 
also apparently Lightaller uh, was sh- you know, Lightaller was uh, short on deck crew because he had just sent several of them down to open the D deck shell doors in order to evacuate passengers from there. <clears throat> yeah, no, those guys never seen again. <laughs> yeah, uh, so you know, yeah, bottom right, you know, you see the open sh- the open door. You know, normally that would be used by first class passengers to board uh, via the reception room. <clears throat> Yeah, but hopefully so, you can get into a boat that's in the water or yeah, you know right. something like that. And yeah, he said he sent like a bunch of guys down. They just didn't come back. Right. Yeah, at around twelve forty-five a.m., he did that. And apparently, he thought, "Yeah, I open the doors and maybe we can lower the boat part partially full, and then and then get more have people, people cannibal in." Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, Lightoller sent boats Wayne, Alfred, Nichols, and six other men to do that task, and you know, as Ellis said, they were never seen again. Um, but they apparently did open the door. Just not get back. Mm-hmm. The crucial why bit, that yeah. is, who knows? Um, <sighs> waylaid by Italians. Unfortunately. Now, now, of course, this raises the question, you know, it's a big hole. Would that let more water in and, uh, you know, sink the ship faster? Obviously, it would have let water in. How much it at contributed point, to the sinking? Matter, yeah. yeah, sort of a yeah. foregone conclusion at this point. Yeah. yeah. It's just not much. I mean, especially because water was pouring in through other portholes and stuff by this point. Like, it's nothing. So they start launching boats. Yeah. Yep. Uh, 12.45, you know, around, you know, starting at uh, 12.45, Lifeboat 7 was the first to be launched uh, out of a capacity of 65. There were 27 aboard, approximately. Oh, that's not efficient. Um, Lifeboat 5 was launched at 12.55 a.m. Uh, 41 were aboard. So they're 65. launching these like sort of like, like half, half full, half empty, yeah, yeah. In, in lifeboat five, well, that's loading. what passengers get for taking it like a joke. Well, yep. yeah, like that. Part of it is in like in the Kevin Costner movie. Part of it is just like oh, the, these sort of martinet officers firing guns in the air to push men back. But like some of it is just like these guys had the chance and they didn't want to take it because no one told them to. I cannot advocate enough for pushing women and children out of the way. Yeah, that, that that one anti-feminist <laughs> guy who just picked up Molly Brown and put her on the lifeboat. Uh, based, actually, <laughs> based misogynist. <laughs> so, you know, lo- lowering of a uh, boat five was actually stopped <clears throat> with the expectation that it would. Uh, the, the loading of the boat was stopped with the expectation that it would board after lowering, but of course, yeah, it didn't happen. Oh, from the shell doors. <laughs> okay. Yeah, as boat five was starting to be lowered. Uh, oh, but it, that was kind of the intention. Like some of these boats were lowered without. Too many people with the intention of loading them later, but they just never Load returned to the ship. What? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, as Boat 5 was starting to be lowered, Fro and Thrall brothers, you know, believing the problem was with the ship's machinery and that they might be blowing up, decided to jump into the boat, <laughs> landing on first class passenger Annie Stangle and dislocating her ribs. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> Oops. Oops. Class war. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, someone shouted, throw that man out of the boat while one of the officers on the scene said, I will stop that. I will go down and get my gun. They went to Why get do it. they all have guns? Never know when you're going to need it, Alice. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, you know, as the boat lowered more, you know, too much rope was let out on one side and it tipped dangerously to one side. It hung there for a moment and then it was leveled out. And, uh, you know, uh, before it could even continue, third officer Pittman blew his whistle to stop it. Uh, because he he asked him he, he wasn't sure if the plug in the bottom of the boat was put in and then and then low shouted down it's your own it's your own blooming business to see if the plug is in anyhow <laughs> <laughs> asshole 
It's it's very funny to me <laughs> to imagine the conception of sort of like officership that allows you to uh, go, yeah, no, maybe drown, but also not to say fucking. <laughs> Lifeboat 6 was launched at 12.55 a.m., 28 aboard out of 65 capacity. In addition to Margaret Brown aboard, uh, others included Quartermaster Robert Hitchens, who was at the wheel during the collision, Frederick Fleet, one of the lookouts who spied the berg. Um, halfway through lowering, Hitchens yelled up to Light Toller to hold the boat as they needed an additional seaman on board to help <laughs> row. Major Arthur Pushin, uh a passenger and, and the yachtsman, he offered his assistance. Uh, Smith said, like 90 years old. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, Smith they all told him to go to the deck below, break a window and get in. He didn't want to do that, so Light Toller was like, if you're seaman enough to go out on those falls <laughs> and get down into the boat, then you may go ahead. So he did. Wait, he he fucking parkoured down like uh, Assassin's Creed. Yeah, he 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 grabbed onto the uh, the lifeboat falls, the ropes, and slid Damn, down. Dude, ah. he was, he he was in his sixties when this happened. By the way, more acrobatic Ooh. than I am now, bro. Yeah. Um, when boat six reached the water, Margaret Brown noticed water flowing into an open porthole on D deck. Next slide. Oh, you're on that. Oh, you're on that slide already. So, uh, Incidentally, they found Putin's wallet in 1987 on the wreck. It's <laughs> uh, like, oops, lost my wallet. Yep. So yeah, you know, the half-empty boats, you know, it's, you know, the, uh, perhaps the crew and officers are wary that the new lifeboat s- davit system, you know, was, you know, was new, they, maybe they didn't trust it to hold weights, um, maybe some didn't seem, you know, they, did, they may not have trusted the boats themselves to hold up, uh, but, you know, as stated earlier, they probably were, some of them at least were planning to load the boats later. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, regardless of why, the fact is many of the boats were half loaded or mostly not fully loaded. So, you know, it's just a fact. So, you know, by 1245, uh, you know, crewmen were ordered to open the watertight doors after the engine room because uh, there was no flooding there and they wanted to run a suction pipe uh, into the forward stokeholds. Um, on F deck, uh, steward Joseph Wheat was grabbing some personal items from his quarters. <clears throat> this was near the pool area, Turkish bath. As he was going back up the grand staircase to E deck, he noticed a heavy flow of water coming down the stairs. He made his way up the stairs through the water, and he saw it coming in from the from a corridor. Um, At this point, I would I would simply leave. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing the I need. There's nothing, there's nothing I need in my quarters enough. that nope. badly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like the water was coming in from the corridor and coming around the corner and down the stairs. I'm like, that's gotta be a frightening sight. Like you're like you're going to grab your stuff and you come back and there's just water just rushing down. It's freezing oh, cold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Twenty-eight yep. degrees, I think Kyle said. No, thank yeah. you. And um Yeah, you, you know, so he went back up and uh he, he also checked Scotland Road at that time, which is the opposite corridor on the other side of the ship from that, uh just a few feet away, but it was dry when he looked. Uh, mm-hmm. So the ship must have had a pretty good starboard list at that point. Um, <clears throat> in boiler rooms five, uh, in boiler room five, the you know firemen were still trying to fight the flooding and draw the fires. Uh, once the fires are out by twelve fifty-five, most of the men left the stokeholds, but uh, you know leading fireman Barrett stayed behind to continue work in the boiler room. Um, it was around this time that Barrett was ordered to lift a manhole plate in the stokehold floor. Uh, to grant access to uh, some pump valves. With the plate off and the room full of steam from the Dallas fires, junior assistant second engineer, it's a mouthful, 
Shepard uh, fell into the hole as he was hurrying through the room and broke his leg. Ow. Oof. Come on, man. <laughs> D- D- damage control is a hazardous business. Yes. Uh, you know, Shepard was lifted out and carried to a nearby pump room. Uh, he didn't make it, obviously. I hate to say it. Uh, while all of this was happening, water was making its way along E-deck above the boiler room of five. And, uh, you know, soon it would find its way down in there. Oh, oh. that's fucked. You, you're yeah, in the no fucking, effects. like, watertight compartment and it starts, like, uh, leaking from above you. He's like, ah, this has gone poorly. <laughs> yeah, you're like... I was uh, told mm. watertight as your lungs fill with fluid. <laughs> it's, it's easy, just swim up as the water cascades in from above. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, like, pumping it kept the Boiler Room 5 free of um, water up to this point. It was, like, it was all in the coal bunker, the, the one that was on fire, and, uh... That's fucked. That's, like, that's, like, the, um, the fucking, uh, like, sailors who survived Pearl Harbor sinkings and then, like, died in the hull in, like, watertight compartments, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, Again, yeah I, have, I have a lot of nightmares about shipwrecks and different ways to die in shipwrecks. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, Titanic had a box of distressor uh, signaling rockets aboard, and no fewer than 48, uh, as well as a fitting for launching them from the bridge. So at 12.47 a.m., the first distress rocket is fired by 4th Officer Boxall. Uh, over the course of the night after this point, you know, approximately eight or so rockets are fired, eh, maybe 12, uh, roughly every five minutes, with the last rocket being fired at 1.50 a.m., half hour before the ship's final plunge. Um, how, how visible are these supposed to be, anyway? Quite visible. They were seen by Californian. You know, and it's, there's been debate over the years about the color of the rockets and all that, but you know, they were white from all accounts, uh, I think. But um, some think they should have been red. But according to regulations at the time, distress rockets are defined as uh, rockets of any color or description fired one at a time at short intervals. Well, so. th- that's true of like most distress signals. Like It's something that is like visible that you repeat at like consistent point. Like You can right. use gunshots as a distress signal in the same way. Five minutes, like, you gotta... Yeah, absolutely. Like Put two yeah. and two together, man. Yeah, although on the Californian they apparently didn't know this because there was some confusion it about is. what the yes. rockets meant. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's the 4th of July out there. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> so this brings us to the Californian. Uh, earlier, a light of another ship had been noticed on the horizon uh, from the Cal- uh, uh, from Titanic. Um, by nearly 1 a.m., 4th Officer Boxhall was curious enough about the mystery ship that he decided to fire distress rockets to get its attention, so that's why he started firing. Uh, quick aside note, um, I think there was an interaction, and I didn't put these in my notes, but I think there was an interaction between Tita- one of Titanic's wireless operators and the one on the Californian, uh, where the Titanic operator basically told him to shut up because he was working Cape Race. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, at first glance, this seems like, uh, you know, oh god, he just insulted the Californian operator and yeah. so they're screwed, but as far as I know, the two operators knew each other, so they probably wouldn't have been offended. Incidentally, sure. shout, out, shout out to those Marconi guys who stayed in their wireless room sending, uh, sending messages until the last second. Oh yeah, and we're getting to that too. Well, in about eight hours. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm at this point drinking. Yeah, I'm uh, delirious. This, is, this, is, this has driven me to drink. So, we, our longest episode, our longest regular of any length was beer, which ran to three hours and 32 minutes. Now, 
Where are we on Zencaster? Three hours, 20. We are absolutely going to break the record. Where, where yeah. are we on the slides? We are at number 29 out of 45. I moved uh, to 30. I made an executive th decision. 30 out of 45. Well, this may, be, this may be a two-passer. I know people hate two-passers, but it may have to no, be. I'm going to split this, because otherwise I'm not going to be able to edit it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh well let's get uh, let's get uh, let's get ourselves ahead so yeah, uh, boat, boat sink boat, boat sink boat we'll we'll sink shake hands with danger bye shake hands with danger I remember I remember the Gulf State episode when I thought oh how could it get any worse <laughs> so, it got so worse. what happened with the Californian shut up Ross. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm trying him. to move the episode along here, rather than pontificate about how slow it is. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, so yeah, you know that 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 mysterious light on the horizon would turn out to be the Leyland Line steamship Californian. Um, so a combination of the distress rockets and Morse lamps that were on Titanic's bridge were used to try to signal Californian, but. There was oh, never I've an answer. I always wanted to use one of those fucking Aldus lamps, the fucking like shutter thing. Yeah, those are cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On Along the, Cal the bridge telegraph. Cool Ooh, things yeah. in ships. Oh, yeah. Uh, aboard the Californian, the ship had stopped for the night in the middle of an ice field. Uh, Captain Stanley Lord had decided to uh, test the, you know, to not test the bergs during the night. You know, it's dark. You, know, you don't want to do that. Uh, so, you know, California's crew reported seeing another liner approach on the horizon stop, then shut off some of its lights. The crew also reported seeing rockets flash, rocket flashes later on, with one looking yeah, good binoculars. Yeah, but we chose not to investigate that because we're stupid. <laughs> and <Yes>. pricks. <laughs> uh, Captain Lord had by that point been taking a nap in the chart room uh, in his uniform. Oh, and, sakes, uh, man. He was told about the ship and the rockets. Lord ordered the men to attempt to contact via their own Morse lamps, but he didn't mention waking up their own wireless operator to try to contact them. Uh, the wireless operator was you know, obviously asleep, so yeah, they tried contacting via the Morse lamp, but there was never a reply, and Titanic didn't see them. And, you know, th this harkens back to the, um, to the possible mirage. It's possible that it obscured that. I do, I do like the caption on that. Story and picture of how wireless awake to the midnight sea. That's nice. As the night wore on, you know, California's crew commented on how strange the mystery liner looked. You know, one commented that the ship looked queer with one end out of the water. <laughs> Yo, <on>. what? <laughs> we are queering the Titanic today. Yeah. That's right, that's right. Uh, soon after, they reported the ship had vanished off the horizon. Yo, this ship gay as hell. <laughs> We are gonna. You ever notice how all the ships that sink are queer coded? Not a coincidence. <laughs> so, how far away was the Californian? Could they have responded in a more prompt uh, fashion? Um, I actually. Oh shoot! I didn't put that in my notes. Uh, Let's say yes and move on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, th that's complicated. Actually. Uh, so, Let's say it's complicated and move on. <laughs> yeah. All right. So. Um, yeah, so, so they saw the rockets, and by 4 a.m., Lord and his chief officer discussed the events, and, you know, they finally woke up the operator, and was like, oh, this has been happening, so finally California set sail for the scene of the sinking. By Idiots. then, it was way too late. Um, Idiots. Yep. Um, First, by his own hubris. 
<laughs> Apparently, after California arrived in Boston, the crew initially desi- denied having seen anything. Oh, what? Jesus Christ! I was a always under the impression. Cover of. Yeah, yeah, even though I was a kid, I was always, always under the impression that the crew of California were just basically dicks. Mm, uh, I don't know yeah, how yeah. accurate that is, but I, I feel I ten year old Liam feels pretty fucking vindicated at the moment. <laughs> uh, During the inquiries, the Californian's crew were questioned, and it was concluded that if California had answered the distress call, she would have made it in time to rescue passengers. Lord eventually lost his job with the Leyland line, though found other jobs with other lines. Um, Oh, like a corrupt cop. The system works. He's he's (laughs) on unpaid suspension. I mean, you can't necessarily place all blame on Lord. You know, he he had a whole ass crew who just, like, didn't do anything. You know, know, some have tried to defend Californians' actions, claiming there were other nearby ships in Titanic's vicinity, and, you know, it's like, well, you know, why not? People try to defend Hitler, too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Most noticeably, the makers of the film Titanic, not the Kevin Costner one. And, yeah, and and they tried to break, they tried to, uh, you know, do this by being like, well, the timings don't match up, but, you know, when you independently compare the timings of the different Sightings. When you see a rocket every five minutes, precisely, and you go, oh, that's weird, and then you just go to bed, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, um... Rockets, of, of all things, should, 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 should be clear. Your role in this movie is the plane that, like, flies over in a castaway movie, and the guy thinks it's seen him, but it hasn't. <laughs> um, there are some caveats to the Californian thing, though. <clears throat> nope. If she had set sail towards Titanic the moment the first distressed rocket fired, or within a few minutes, you know, would she have made it in time to save people? Uh, one, there was a lot of ice. Californian might not have been able to go full speed. Even if it did, it wasn't a very fast ship. You know, uh, by the time, you know, two, by the time Californian might have gotten the Titanic, it's likely Titanic would have already been gone with all of her passengers now in the water. Even if it hadn't yet disappeared, Californian would have gotten there you know, relatively late and you know, basically when things had already gone completely to shit. And California only had lifeboats for 218 people. So like it's I think it's safe to say that even if Californian got there on a, earlier under the best of circumstances, a lot of people would have died still. Gotcha. Ultimately, you know, it's up for debate, but uh the fact is, you know, uh we'll never know because Californian didn't even try. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know the just before one a.m. Jack Phillips was still tapping out CQD and jokingly, Harold Bride suggested using the SOS instead of CQD as it's the new call and it may be your last chance to send it, as Ellis said. And you know this drew a laugh from Phillips, but you know why not? So he began yeah. tapping. He tapped so it out. Uh, it's like a. That's what I'm doing right now, actually. It's it's cool that I have this uh, this sensor key that I can inadvertently use as a Morse key. Ah. Proud of you. Oh, Oh, that's neat. Um, You know, in various places around the ship at around 1 a.m. or so, you know, in forward quarters, Quartermaster Bright was asleep. He got woken up on the news that the ship was going down. At the same time, he realized he was late in relieving Quartermaster George Rowe. 
<laughs> oh shit, I'm late for work. And he runs down the corridor. Like Slipping it's flooding around his ankles. <laughs> yeah, and he's got like a piece of toast in his mouth. <laughs> Sobbing yeah. wet toilet paper dragging from one foot. <laughs> he immediately got up to do his duties. On the when he got to the docking bridge aft where Ro was. Uh, they wondered what to do. Uh, when the first rocket was launched, Roe noticed that Boat 7 was in the water. Apparently, Roe didn't realize that they were launching lifeboats or that much of anything was happening at this point. Oh, man, that would be a rude awakening. Jesus Christ. Mm. Like, hey, uh, asshole, guess what happened while you were asleep? <laughs> oh, boy, I'm late for work, and the work is sinking. And, yes. and, 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 and Roe, he had been awake the whole time. He was, on, he was on the docking bridge since the collision. He was just standing there the whole time all this was happening. A blessed man. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, stay at your post. You know, Ro, after Roe saw this, he called the bridge um, because there was a phone on the docking bridge. And, uh, you know, Boxall answered and Roe reported seeing the lifeboat. He, you know, he did, just didn't know there were any orders to lower boats. So Boxall was uh, like, all right. Uh, he ordered Roe and Bright to take the rocket detonators from the stern and bring them to the bridge. Which they did. And so effectively, that ended Roe's watch. Second class passenger Lawrence Beasley, by this time, had been watching events unfold on deck, and he you know, he noticed, you know, the the, you know, the people partying and the couples and more people going to the boats and all that. He started realizing realizing that the situation is more serious. Uh, I mean, passenger- this is entirely the fault of the officers, right? Like, yeah. uh, if you're if you if you're trying to evacuate people and people aren't taking it seriously, then it's your jo- like it comes with the fucking like thing on your sleeve that you have to fucking tell them, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I think at some point you you shoot one of the passengers <laughs> <laughs> to establish discipline. Right. Yes, <laughs> specifically you, you you shoot the richest person in front of you, and then everybody else gets in the boat. The passenger Jack Thayer happened by Thomas Andrews, who told who told him that not much uh, that the Titanic had not much over an hour to live. You shoot um, Ben Guggenheim, and you're like, I think I just inaugurated an art gallery. <laughs> uh, in the first class smoking room, a group of four men, including Major Archibald Butt, were lounging at a table. <laughs> oh, Archie Butt, my but. old friend. Uh, Major Butt, once again. Colonel Archibald Gracie headed down to a stateroom at CDAT to grab blankets. He, White men love to be named Archibald. <laughs> <laughs> How do you get to Gracie Hall? Die on the Titanic. <laughs> yes. You know, finding his cabin locked, Gracie was told by a steward that it was because of fear of looting. He was given blankets by another cabin. The excuses uh, never change. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wait, so you're telling me there's still loot down there? I could get some sweet-ass blankets? Oh, yeah. Hey, they tried that with Concordia, so... Might loot the Titanic. Hey, no one's out there. New Patreon tier, baby. Yeah, yeah. Uh, At 1 a.m. in second class, passengers are still crowding up the stairwell. The single elevator was not operating, uh, as the ones forward weren't either in first class. With the firing of the last few rockets, passengers began realizing things might be more serious, though many still believe they were safe. Still, jack off. The thing is, a lot of a lot of British people and American aristocracy at this time, which was a different variant of British people, were very stupid. Yes, were, Uh, (laughs) but like were in an even more way. Mm -hmm. Listen, I've had a couple of drinks for this. (laughs) I'm about to get a third one. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, you know, around one at around one a.m. By lifeboat number one, Sir Cosmo and Lady Duff Gordon, along with their secretary, Laura Francatelli, were standing around waiting. Imagine um, being named Cosmo and Duff. Yeah. 
duff. It just makes I've you never think seen of the this episode of the Fairly Odd Parents. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the ladies had not wanted to part with the Cosmo. Um, <laughs> and what know, else is new? Yeah, <laughs> uh, Cosmo. Uh, once boat three was eventually lowered, the area around them mostly clear to people, figuring nobody else was getting in. Sir Cosmo asked the officer loading the boat if they could get in. Please do, he said. So they all got in. That's so polite. Aww. Like, once again, you're just like, oh, please do. Please to make my acquaintance with a lifeboat. And you're just like, dude, <laughs> fucking, it, it's an emergency Charmed. situation. You can't, like, oh, may I introduce lifeboat 16? Uh, oh, yes, first... you bloody well may. <laughs> <laughs> I say, it's your bloody responsibility to ensure that the hole in the bottom of the boat is plugged. <laughs> you know what this is? This is too British. Yeah. First class passenger, passenger Charles Stangle also approached boat one, asking Officer Murdoch if he could get in. Murdoch told him, yeah, go ahead, jump in. Uh, Stangle, Stangle had to lift himself up over the bulwark railing and into the boat, which is on the other side of the railing, obviously, um, <laughs> hanging over the water. Uh, and he had some trouble doing it. He had to roll over the wood rail and drop into the boat. And apparently, oh, Murdoch, because, that's embarrassing, man. His little it, legs are kicking. It, it, and what made wor- what made this worse is Murdoch laughed and said, "That is the funniest sight I've seen all night." <laughs> Damn. It's Damn, cold. That's cold. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you know, fi- the water, Alice. Mm. And and you know, finally, passenger and businessman Abraham Solomon boarded boat one with Murdoch's permission. Murdoch just letting all the men in. Yeah. <laughs> go to go to Murdoch's uh, side if you're a dude. Um, yeah, this this boat is for women and femmes only. It's for people of marginalized genders. <laughs> so, uh, lifeboat three was launched at one a.m. You know, fifty aboard out of capacity of sixty-five. Lifeboat eight was launched at one ten a.m. Sixty-five capacity, thirty-nine on board. Uh, Captain it's Smith, person- we're going yeah. over half at least at this point. Yeah. yeah. Captain Smith personally ordered boat eight lowered, asking if there were any more ladies nearby. He ordered the men in charge of that boat to <laughs> yo, row for the light. Yo, where the women at? Yeah. <laughs> Smith ordered the men in charge of that boat to row for the light on the horizon, the Californian. But obviously, they never made it that far. Uh, lifeboat one was launched at one fifteen a.m. Uh, twelve aboard out of a capacity of forty. Jesus. It, it seems like if you were relatively proactive about getting to where the lifeboats were being launched you could have got on yeah if you wanted to it's just a case of like not knowing what to do because no one has told you man's hubris and you know out of the 12 aboard seven were crew so like it seems like they were intending to (laughs) that's um... that's like a dereliction i'm getting fully victorian morality about this like okay you you are a trained sailor you know to get in the boat why aren't you fucking throwing people in the boat with that one guy did yeah just pick her up put her down yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know. <clears throat> so I, I'm guessing they probably did that with the intention of loading it from the gangways, but again, they just didn't do that. It, it's impossible to say. Like it could just have been entirely self-centered. It could have been panic. We don't know. Yeah. Um. As boat one was lowered, it got caught up and uh, probably the uh, coaling uh, outrigger wires, and uh, it took five minutes to get it cut away. Next slide. So boat sink. <clears throat> Boat sink. Boat it's sink. getting there. You know, uh, up to this point, work had still been going in boiler room five to keep the water out. Um, you know, the, the damage was in the coal bunker, so it seemed easy. But at 1.10 a.m., you know, uh, leading fireman Barrett had he spotted a terrific rush of water come flowing into the boiler room 
and towards him from between the boilers. Another uh, one. <laughs> Barrett was ordered up top by junior assistant engineer Herbert Harvey. So he climbed the escape ladders just in time, just as the water was uh, swirling around. Don't like that. Barrett exited the boiler room via a door along Scotland Road, where he saw water flooding up the forward end of the corridor. You know, it really takes something out of those reconstruction photos of the of the corridors that, to know that that floor is linoleum. Yeah. Art of grey. The floor in that fancy Turkish bathroom is also linoleum, if you could see it under all that water. Uh, around 1.15am, saloon steward Ray, who had just been on... Uh, F deck wading through the flooding water on the lower grand staircase is making his way up the stairs. Uh, passing C deck, he saw two pursers in the off in the purser's office, along with clerks, removing items from the large safe in that room and placing them in bags. Hey guys, this is good, right? Just yeah. do, do doing a little bit of robbery for fun. So a little, little looting, just a little looting. Yeah. A little something. I mean, like. There's there's a lot of like loosing happens like that's again it's that thing about the best and worst of humanity you know firefighters looted stuff from stores on nine eleven I mean oh, yeah. to be fair they were probably trying to save items but like you know it's oh, suspicious who can say, at best. Who yeah. can say? Uh, you're, you're totally like prying the earrings off of Nancy Astor at this point like yeah come on <laughs> me personally or. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, oh, like that's what, that's what that's what because I'm Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I would be doing. Is I would be locating the richest passengers. And I would taking be doing a class. Yeah, you'd be doing a class war. <laughs> I would be doing a class war. Yes. Uh, after one after one fifteen a.m., it was noted by lookout George Simons in a lifeboat that uh, the bow of the ship was down low enough for the second roll of portholes below Titanic. Uh, the name painted on the bow to you know to disappear under the water. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> You know, by now the mood was beginning to turn. You know, the passengers noticed the no increasing angle. jovial. Again, yeah. Yeah. again, like if the mood is jovial, then you should change it. Like yeah. it. Oh. Uh, at one twenty a.m., men working in the after boiler rooms and engine room were released from their duties in a sort of a run for it sort of way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Some by junior second engineer John Hesketh, who said, "We've done all we can, men. Get out now." Uh, others in the engine room were released from duty by senior second engineer William Farquharson. Farquharson, I don't know. Farquharson. Farquharson. Uh, around the same time, trimmer Thomas Dillon had heard that the had heard the order uh, as he was heading to the engine room, uh, which is good because you know he had just seen water flooding up from below the stone cold floor plates in boiler room four. That's that's a worry seeing yeah. it come up around the boilers. <laughs> and that, that one's a little confusing because it's hard to say where that was coming from. There's a theory from I think uh, I think Titanic researcher Park Stevenson that maybe the iceberg might have done a very small amount of grounding damage on the bottom of the ship below boiler room four, at least. Um, mm. There's no proof of that. We don't know. But one has to wonder where the water came from there. So we have to talk about the class system at this point. Once again, because as we know, the Titanic was divided into upper, middle, and lower class uh, tickets and areas. And so oh. one of the things that's in the movie is... Oh, we just shut these gates and we we keep the the immigrants, you know, locked in 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 the the hole to drown. Uh, let's see. Oh, is that right. actually true? Did those gates exist? So yeah, the third class gates, you know, no, not quite. So yeah, they, they didn't, didn't. They didn't have gates to stop you from catching Irish. <laughs> 
N- no potato uh, inflammation disease yeah there were <clears throat> there were three main ways to like to divvy off like uh interior areas one was the doors plenty of those some were locked some weren't uh, others were low railing gates um these were exterior railings on the upper decks uh these were marked in blue on, on this plan and uh the, these are low railings only a few feet high you could jump over the gates that were on those if you really wanted to the other were Bostwick gates. These are the famous gates you see in the movies. These were only in a few locations around the ship, marked in pink. Uh, and they were mostly locking off like crew areas or in crew areas, like for cargo or locking off like a mail sorting area. Hmm. There were no Bostwick gates to lock third class passengers below decks. That didn't happen. Yeah, there were also watertight doors that would have locked off some of these corridors but you know that was never intended to like keep anyone below and even then kind of a mercy you know like i i I mean this is sort of a a myth from our own home on the political left is like oh we just we didn't care about these people so we just left them to die uh and in fact we actively hindered their survival and it's like it seems like the ways in which that happened were far more passive than that and I, yeah. I, that's the most insidious thing of all, right? Is the ways systems just yeah. happen to fuck people over. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Uh, and even if they were locked in by watertight doors, there were staircases, ladders, and all kinds of things out of all of these compartments. So they, the problem is um, that third-class passengers just weren't familiar with the ship. Like, in theory, they could easily escape onto the upper decks from anywhere. Nothing would have kept them below. Um, no maps, no drills. Yeah, no maps. No, I don't know if there were signs, really, at least not in other languages. And so they just, you know, the worst enemy in this case was the ship's very layout mm. and their unfamiliarity with it. Um, they were probably people who just wandered around trying to find their way out. And, you know, it, yeah. it's a little note for you, the listener, that when you when you go into somewhere that has a sign up telling you how to get out of somewhere, Get familiar with that sign. Always, always, uh, always know the exits. If, if it, yeah, no, always, always know your exits in general. But in particular, if you're in a hotel, if you're on a ship, if you have something with a like a mandated, like statutory poster of your evacuation route, you should learn that. Uh, another issue, though, is that it wasn't all completely passive. Um, well, of course were... not. I hate to interrupt. Now that we just hit three hours and fifty minutes, I have to genuinely yeah, drop it, off. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, thanks, Kyle. Uh, thanks, everybody. Bye, I'll Liam. See you next Bye, week. Liam. Bye, guys. Bye, Liam. All right, boat go sink. Boat go sink. Boat go sink. <clears throat> so, come yeah, on, man. I'm on drink number three over here. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> All right, so you know some of the third class passengers. Uh, they many of them had gathered on the aft well deck, and they were kept from going above by uh, some crewmen who were stationed at the exterior staircases going up to the. Yeah, guard against Italians. Yes. Yeah. Eventually, they relented and let him through, but like it was certainly a problem. But I have to go back because I'm. Uh, we skipped ahead quite a bit. Uh, no, we don't. No, we don't skip ahead further. I was about to say, what did we skip? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't have to go through all of it. Uh, mainly the lifeboats, which is that um, you know, um, basically by one fifteen, only six lifeboats left the ship. Um, a rumor had circulated around that time that um, men were to be let into the lifeboats on the aft port quarter, and so they all started running that way. 
Um, at was that 14, the same quarter that we had had? We had seen the officer who was like letting men aboard, or yeah. Uh, at bolt fourteen, oh, okay. stewardess Violet Jessup climbed in, uh, and then uh, you know, a stu- uh, six officer Moody handed her a baby. Uh, fun aside about Jessup, uh, she was uh, she was uh, she earlier served on the Olympic, you know, Titanic sister ship, of course, and she was mm. on she was on board during the Hawk collision. Um, you know, she wasn't injured or anything. You know, tonight she found herself on Titanic as it sank, you know, but luckily she's getting away in the lifeboat. A few years later, in November 1916, she was serving oh no. on the oh other no. sister the ship. Britannic. The Britannic. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she was a nurse, you know, it struck a mine, started sinking. He found her, She found herself in a lifeboat, <clears throat> but lifeboat got launched early, way too early, while the ship was still moving through the water and the propellers were turning. So you see where I'm going with this. Oh, boy. Mm. Yep. The lifeboat got pulled through the propellers. Some jumped out, but the rest got chopped to pieces. Mm. Uh, she almost got killed. She got hit by something on her head. She, you know, it could have been debris. It could have been the boat. It could have been a propeller blade. Who knows? Either way, you know, she managed to survive very narrowly. So, you know, just, uh, yeah. yeah I, I, I have survived sinking. I, fucking, I've survived an. Uh, like an incident on every ship of this class. Yes, they should give you a little like achievement for that a little steam achievement, These little medal. Ships suck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh man, I hate these fucking things. So, so you know, uh, yeah, it's a bunch of things played out around this time. It's just a bunch of crap. Uh, there are so many stories. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we really are rushing. When yeah. you're like, oh uh, uh, yeah, a bunch of shit happened. Don't worry about yeah, it. Boat sank. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the men tried getting in boats and crowding them, and they were fighting, you know, the officers fired off shots. Things are really starting to fall apart around this time. You can see the sort of pious Victorian morality only survives until the water's around about your knee level, and then you're like, uh, yeah, no, okay, I'm gonna fist fight a guy. Lifeboat 9 was launched at 1.20 a.m., 56 aboard out of 65. <clears throat> Lifeboat 12 was launched at 1.25 a.m., 42 out of 65 aboard. Uh, lifeboat eleven was launched at one twenty-five as well. Seventy aboard out of sixty-five, supposedly. Oh, that's more like it. Yeah, that's that's what you should be doing. <laughs> uh, when boat eleven reached the water, there was some difficulty with the jammed release mechanism, uh, which was uh, made worse by a nearby condenser discharge stream. <clears throat> you know those uh, condensers we mentioned earlier, mm. and uh, it nearly swamped the boat. But once on jam, they made it away. Lifeboat fourteen was launched at. Uh, 1.30 a.m., 63 out of 65 aboard. At this point, how many people are in the water? Are there, like, any people in the water, or is there, like, jumping from the ship going on, or what? I don't think so, not at this point. There wasn't a need for that yet. Um, you know, boat 14 was lowered with 5th Officer Lowe aboard, while on the boat, Lowe had asked a man if he thought the boat could uh, hold their weight, and he was like, hanging in the davits all right. But he uh, he gave the order to lower lower away. As boat 14 passed a deck, large groups of passengers were there, seemingly waiting to jump into the boat. This is especially concerning to Lowe, who was still worried about the weight. Um, Lowe pulled out his gun and fired three shots along the side of the ship to scare, to scare the people away. Um, to Lowe... Yeah, they finally do the thing that they've been trying to do, which is load the boats from like midway down, and it's too crowded to do it. Uh, but to Lowe... Uh, the crowd looked like, quote, a lot of Italians and Latin people. <laughs> oh, God. 
not good. good. Not good. Uh, oh my god. Those terms were, you know, Italians and Latin people were terms often thrown around back in those days. You know, yeah, interchangeably too. Yeah. yeah. And the prejudice was so deeply ingrained that when Lowe testified at the American inquiry, you know, that he fired shots to prevent Italian immigrants from jumping into my lifeboat, he was forced to apologize in a letter by the Italian ambassador. In the letter, <laughs> in the letter, Lowe stated, I do, I do thereby cancel the word Italian and substitute the words immigrants belonging to Latin races. In fact, <laughs> I did not mean to infer that they were spe- especially Italians because I could only judge them from their general appearance and complexion. And therefore, I only meant to imply that they were of the types of the Latin races. Uh, in any case, I do not intend to cast any reflection on the Italian nation. Right. So, <laughs> so he stops the Italians, allegedly, from getting into the boat, and they lower it down. Yeah. Uh, and also, as Boat 14 got, in the wa- got near the water, its falls got jammed. Uh, it was about five feet above the water, so they just released it, and it fell that distance. <laughs> sure, it scared them a bit. Um, mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. And, of course, Lifeboat 16 was launched at uh, 1.35 a.m. capacity, 56 out of 65. Um, you know, by 1.30, the situation's getting really bad, or at least worse. Um, you know, it was low enough in the water that people in the boats could clearly see that she might sink. Um, it was around this time that Stuart John Stewart, yes, he, there he really was that, oh my god, my stomach is growling. <laughs> You could probably hear it on the mic. Uh, <laughs> around this time, Stuart John Stewart checked the first class smoking room, and he found Thomas Andrews in there by the fireplace. He was staring at a painting by uh, Norman Wilkinson. Uh, also aside, Wilkinson was the one who uh, invented the whole, um, what do you call that? The dazzle paint scheme used during the world trip, uh, huh. warships in World War I. So, Interesting. Uh you know, up on deck, the loading of the other boats had commenced, you know, again, a whole bunch of stories playing out, um, you know, like uh, third class passengers, you know, Eugene Daly, Maggie Daly and Bertha Mulville, you know, they made their way up on the boat deck. Apparently on the way up, they nearly fought with a guy that they asked for a life jacket from because he <laughs> thought the guy was trying to take the life jacket for himself. So, <laughs> Just like mutual suspicion that the other might be Italian. Yes. Yeah. Um, while, when, when, when they got up to the boat deck, the daily group saw uh, a family named Rice standing off to the side. They, 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 they were third class passenger Margaret Rice and her five children. All of them died. <laughs> you know, by this point, Titanic starboard list had reversed and the ship was now starting to list the port. It, it went down in a sort of very accommodating way, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, like it, like all the, all the illustrations, it's like straight on all the way down. Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know. Meanwhile, leaning fireman Frederick Barrett, you know, he was making his way aft on a deck, and he saw, you know, he came by boats thirteen and fifteen. Um, you know, no officer was nearby at the time, and he knew the ship was going to sink, so he just sort of climbed in. And it was around this time that a bunch of people got into boats. Uh, I think boat thirteen. Uh, and fifteen. Uh, Lawrence Beasley got into thirteen. Uh, mm, some, we're entering the sort of like self keeper kind of like era here. Yeah. Um, also, uh, uh, Paul Maj, kitchen clerk and chief P- uh, chef Pierre Rousseau of the Ellicott Restaurant made their way to the boat deck by now too. They were the lucky ones because uh, earlier they were prevented from leaving their quarters on E deck by a bunch of stewards. 
They managed to convince the stewards to let them pass because they were dressed in their uniforms, but the rest of the restaurant staff were not allowed to pass, which is, you know, probably why most of them all died. Jesus. You know, Maj arrived on the edge of the deck by boat 13. He decided to jump right in. Someone on the ship tried to pull Maj off the boat, but he survived. He managed to stay on the boat and, you know, of course, survived. That's pretty awkward to be in the lifeboat for hours with somebody who, you know, tried to, like, throw you off of it. <laughs> uh, he was actually, uh, someone on the Titanic tried pulling him off the boat. Oh, I see. Okay. And, uh, but he stayed on. Uh, he shouted up to Rousseau to jump, but, uh, he refused. Uh, Maj thought that this, this was because, uh, Rousseau was too fat. Just not- <laughs> <laughs> no, fuck that. My big ass is jumping. Uh, a quick aside, the only reason I'm going through some of these stories is because they are, I think they are pretty, like, they add flavor to the Titanic story, and it's hard to skip them. Hmm. You know, but yeah, so all right, now we're to the third class gates. We already did that. So now we can skip ahead to, all right, we're already on that slide. Yeah. Lifeboats 13 and 15. So, yeah, um, 13 was the 13th boat to be launched at 1.35 a.m. Uh, you know, if, chip. Yeah, yeah it, chip. If, if our estimations of when boats were launched were, are correct, uh, that changes like every few years. Um, you know, the, the uh, 64 out of 65 aboard about 30 seconds after that, because it takes, you know, a good minute or so to lower the boats to the water. Lifeboat 15 was launched around 135, um, you know, um, overloaded with 70 aboard. And uh, the boat 15 was the one directly aft of 13. So when 13 hit the water, it started getting pushed aft by the uh, condenser stream and they almost got swamped. But the falls that were, were still connected stopped the boat from moving. But it was now underneath 15. So 15 came down and very slowly, of course, and it almost crushed 13. The passengers in 13 had to, you know, they shouted up, but no one was, uh, you know, stopping the lowering. And you know, they were pushing on the bottom of 15 to try to get out of the way. Finally, you know, uh, it's they, horrifying they could even reach it. Yeah. Yeah, finally, uh, some crewmen, including, I think, Barrett, um, you know, cut the falls and they got out just in time. But apparently no one had even had thought to, like, stop the boat. Like, there were no officers up on deck because Murdoch and Moody were busy elsewhere. Like, the only people in authority were, like, just the men letting go of the ropes. Hmm. Next slide, please. Yeah. Uh, by now, lifeboat number 10 on the port side was still sitting on its chocks and had yet to be loaded and even or even swung out. So Murdoch started that process. Uh, you know, at lifeboat two, a group of male crew members rushed onto it uh, behind Chief Officer Wilde's back uh, when he was looking for women, women and children. He, <laughs> <laughs> this is a sneaking mission. Yeah, uh, he. You know, you know, Smith, Captain Smith noticed it. He grabbed a megaphone and shouted, how many of the crew are in that boat? Get out of there, every man of you. You know, I'm going to die like I lived, yelling at enlisted men. Yes. Yeah, and there was around that at this point, uh, Captain Smith took a megaphone and he shouted out on the water, you know, bring those boats back. They're only half filled. A whistle was then blown <clears throat> and Smith, you know, yelled at him. Yeah, you know, he, you know, he asked them to. uh you know, come around to the starboard side, specifically to Boxhall's boat. 
um, to the gangway doors. Mm. So it's not it's not a bad idea because like we have people in the water at this point, but like they're already dying from right. hypothermia at this point, right? Not yet. Okay. Um, at least as far as I know. Um, uh, but so Boxall begins rowing around the end of the ship to get you know. Um, you know, in boat six, you know, Quartermaster Hitchens decided to ignore Smith's orders for boats to return. Uh, he said, he said, no, we are not going back to the boat. It is our lives now, not theirs. Eh. He, wa- he wanted to row further away instead. Your literal lifeboat ethics. And like the reason why you would row away from a shipboat is the, uh, 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 a shipwreck rather is like the idea that it might suck you down with it, right? Yeah. They thought they basically, they thought Titanic would act as a giant. Like black hole, you just suck everything down within <laughs> ten yeah. miles or something. I mean, how how plausible is that? That if you're close enough to a shipwreck, you just get dragged down. I mean, if it goes fast enough, sure. But in Titanic's case, there was literally no suction. Mm. It was that slow. Um, it's wild that the yeah. light stayed on that long too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Hitchens was described as being cowardly and almost crazy with fear. Uh, by 1.45 a.m., Titanic's port list had increased Almost to about 10 Italian degrees. Almost Italian with fear. Uh, oh, there you go. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, you know, it's, the port list was about 10 degrees, so you know, when they were loading boat 10, there was a two and a half foot gap between it and the deck. Um, so like at, that. at this time, uh, collapsible lifeboats C and D were being prepared, and this process took forever because, you know, the nature of the boats... Yeah, they're not like inflatable, right? You literally have to like pull up these canvas sides. Yeah. Um, Chief Baker Charles Yalhin was on the boat deck uh, trying to help women and children to the boats, and this guy will appear later, <laughs> and help to get people into boat 10, mostly third class. You know, once this was done, Yalhin and some other crew had uh, went to the deck below and, you know, had to grab passengers and bring them up because there were just so few people up on deck, like on the higher deck, and they just threw them into the boat across the gap. Um, mm. It makes sense, though, to like hide within this like big structure, it's like all metal, you think yeah. it's gonna like protect you? Oh boy, as, as boat 10 was being lowered, a man described by some as a foreigner of some kind, and a crazed <laughs> Italian, <laughs> ran up... <laughs> ran, okay, sure. Ran up and jumped into the boat, landing on passenger Ludie Parrish, bruising her and crushing her foot. Uh, but later, the foreigner quotes helped to co- to row the boats. So you know the ladies found that helpful. Oh, that's uh, nice of him. There you go. On the one hand, he was crazed and Italian, but on the other hand, uh, very helpful. Around 1:50 a.m., a steward had apparently been serving free risky from the bar under the poop deck. Uh, the steward reportedly said, "Go on, lads, drink up. She is going down." Uh, nice. <laughs> trimmer, trimmer, Thomas Dillon and others took the steward up on his offer. And before they headed up on the poop deck, uh, and then they, uh, he and the other uh, men from the engineering spaces, uh, they had enough tobacco for one cigarette, which they passed around between fifteen men. Oh, oh that's grim. Fifteen. They should have delivered those cigarettes to the boat. Yeah, yeah no kidding. You, you get like one <laughs> short drag each. Although I do wonder the extent to which being drunk helped you with hypothermia. Hmm. Probably some. Being drunk is better in like a lot of uh, like obviously it like impairs your decision making and makes you much less likely to survive in most scenarios. But in like the other say twenty five percent, being absolutely fucked really does seem to help you. Like you just kind <laughs> yeah. of go limp and you just wait for someone to rescue you. Yeah, seems to work. 
Mate, that's our, that's our like official WTYP official survival advice <laughs> is uh, determine whether or not this is a disaster which will be helped by you being drunk, and then if it <laughs> is, uh, you know, hit that free whiskey. I was about to say, you know, take take advantage of all you can. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, let's see. Uh, ooh, we're getting there. not too far from the end, really. Um, uh, famous last words. Yeah, a little bit. Famous last words. Uh, you know, at boat ten, a woman tripped on her heel and she almost fell from the from the deck, and she had to get back on a second attempt. Um, you know, somebody finally found a key for the windows for lifeboat four at this point. Uh, on a deck, John Jacob Astor and it's Colonel, like half an hour later. Jesus yeah. Christ! Uh, on a deck, John Jacob Astor and Colonel Gracie uh, helped Madeline uh, Astor's pre- pregnant wife to board boat four. Uh, you know, Astor asked Second Officer Lightoller what the boat number was so he could find his wife later. Lightoller told him it was four, but he didn't recognize him as Astor, and he thought he, uh, the guy was asking so he could file a complaint against Lightoller later. <laughs> <laughs> then we have some we have some more boats launched at this point. Yeah, Lightboat Two was launched at one forty-five a.m. Twenty-six out of capacity of forty, um, maybe as few as seventeen. Jesus. Lifeboat 10 was launched at 1.50 a.m., 55 out of 65. Uh, when boat 10 hit the water, there's a brief difficulty in ga- disengaging the falls. Uh, as a crewman worked on it, somebody said, hurry up, the boilers may explode at any moment. Was that ever a risk, or was that just something people convinced themselves of? No, no risk at all. All the boilers had been uh, cold by that point. Mm. Um, Lifeboat 4 was launched at 1.55 a.m., capacity 65, 40 aboard. Um, by 1.50 a.m., the forward well deck was already awash, and the forecastle began to go under, too. Uh, the last distress rocket was also fired around this time by Quartermaster George Rowe. Um, you know, the boat, boat four was in the water. Passenger Emily Ryerson noted that the A-deck appeared to be only 20 feet above water, water rushing into portholes and flooding into rooms with the lights still on. Um, mm. Chief it's Baker- well that the electricity stayed on that long. Yeah. Um, I think they gradually went out in rooms, obviously, and stuff like that as stuff was shorted out, but... Uh, yeah, still, though. Like, normally you would expect that to just be, like, off or, like, on, but, like, yeah, that kind of progressive failure, that's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, Chief Baker Charles uh, Yalhin was down in his cabin sometime after 1.50, having a drop of liquor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my ass. Dr- like, onto his second bottle of whiskey. Yeah. Uh, he briefly met and spoke with the ship's surgeon, Dr. O'Loughlin, and then noticed water starting to flood into his cabin, possibly through an open watertight door nearby, which had been open for access. Uh, when he left the cabin to go back uh, topside, he saw two men coming to close the watertight door with a large spanner. So, like, even if you were, like, amidships, like, the, the, the uh, kind of normality or pretended normality really persisted a long time. Yeah, and and this and this was pretty. This was on E deck. It was relatively high at this point, but water was already flooding in. This is as far aft as the engine room. Good lord! Uh, so I mean, it wasn't down in the engine room yet, probably, but it was coming in from above. Hmm. After heading to A deck to throw about fifty deck chairs overboard, Yalhen went into the A deck pantry for some water, and he must have been there for a while because he co- he comes up later. By uh, water, he yeah. means like third and fourth bottle of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, obviously in lifeboats, passengers could see that it was sinking lower. Uh, in the Marconi suite, Captain Smith arrives to tell Phillips, uh, uh, 
and bride that uh, you know titanic will not last very long and the engine rooms are taking water and the dinos there's a lot of like uh witness testimonies that like i only realized it was sinking once i got into the lifeboat and i saw it from the outside yeah it's kind of deceptive in its way like it seems relatively survivable once you're on it but as soon as you're off you're like immediately aware that it's doomed yeah, yeah. And by this point the power was starting to grow weaker um you know by 150 Titanic received a message from the Baltic saying they were rushing to help. Classable C and D were being loaded by now, and you know they were trying to get them ready. The Nikid family, I, I I believe they were. Uh, God, I forgot where they were. Um, sounds sounds Arabic, but yeah, uh, they yeah they were. Uh, but you know the father, his wife, like uh, Mary and uh, daughter Maria, they arrived at Classable C. You know the the women got in, but he stayed out. He was prevented. Um, so he decided to just wait and look for the right moment to jump in. Uh, Ismay, Ismay, meanwhile, was standing near Collapsible C, uh, having helped load it earlier, and uh, now it was clear that the ship would be gone. Um, also, earlier, oh, I think I might have skipped it, but earlier Ismay was like standing around boat C, and he started panicking, and he was like, oh my god, we need to get the boats out now, we need to get them, and the officer was like, if you would stop, maybe I could. Yeah. <laughs> It's why he sort of remembered as a coward, which I guess we'll get to. Yeah, it's, unf- uh, it's it, it's sort of unfair to him. Yeah, I uh, actually I never I removed the Ismay part from the notes, but uh, I mean, mm. but yeah, I mean he. Oh, you know, we can just knock that out now, which is just we'll, to say we'll, that we'll talk about him in in the Nazi uh, Titanic, which is like, uh, like a, a sort of adaptation of the Titanic story was one of the pre-war narratives that the Nazis had as a movie, and in that, it's like this one member of the crew is made German, and he's sort of the Cassandra who like sees everything coming. He's the upright like stalwart bastion of masculinity, but like Ismay is made to be Jewish, and he's made to be this sort of like deceptive, uh, cowardly, self-interested guy uh, who is like only interested in corporate profits and who pushes the ship towards disaster, and it's 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 absolutely a libel on him. Um, yeah. <sighs> oh yeah. Uh, back at boat D, Light Teller came across a group of men who he described as Dagos. Nice. Jesus, I'm going for a I'm going for a piss. So yeah. do not pause for me. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, they had to jump into the lifeboat. Uh, Lightaller hopped in with his gun, and he quote encouraged them verbally to leave. Oh boy! They tumbled out of the boat, not wanting to get shot. According to Lightaller, the, the gun wasn't even loaded. Um, you know, the task accomplished. You know, boat D was swung over the side, and they started loading. Um, at the, around this time, boat two <clears throat> rounded the stern on its way to the starboard side, and uh. Boxhall, who was on the boat, he he noticed that the propellers were completely out of the water at that point. Yeah, um, not good. And uh, but Boxhall at that point, he was hesitant to approach Titanic uh, when he got to the other side. You know, he was supposed to pick up more people, but instead of doing that, he opted to row out further from the ship. And he justified it by saying he felt that the boat had already had enough people on board and that he was worried they'd be rushed and swamped by scared passengers. I mean, not wrong. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, you know, by 2 a.m., forward B-deck was well underwater, probably, and the forward cabins are flooding. Um, and on the boat deck at that point, a large number of trimmers and engineers and firemen had uh, came up on deck. And, um, you know, most of the you know, most of these men, you know, they wouldn't survive. 
And by oh, two, good. yeah, and by two a.m., the forecastle was well submerged. <coughs> um, so, is, is this the point at which we reached the sort of like enormous, like pitched deck, and people were like sliding off to their doom and all the fun things like that? Uh, almost. We can go to the next slide now, please. Uh, you know, oh yeah. After separating from the other crewmen, you know, Greaser's uh, Thomas Ranger and uh, Frederick Scott. You know, they see boat four in the water rowing near the ship, and they were like, you know what, this is our chance. So they both climbed out onto the davits, and then they slid down the boat falls into the lifeboat. Well, almost. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Kinda. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna fast rope into this life, lifeboat. Well, kinda. Scott lost his grip and fell into the water. Oh. Well, listen, it's not cool unless it's dangerous. But it's okay. A ranger made it into the boat, and Scott was pulled aboard. So, yay! Um, you know, a collapsible sea. You know, Murdoch was uh, still having trouble finding women and children. <laughs> uh, quartermaster <laughs> on that on that lift, libertarian quadrant. Yeah, quartermaster Rowe got into the boat to help man it, and then it was then that Bruce Ismay. Uh, and first class passenger William Carter, who was the guy who owned the car that was in the cold cargo hold. Oh, the Ford Model T or whatever that's in the movie uh, with Kevin it, Costner. Yeah, it was a Renault. Oh. Uh, but you know, they climbed into the boat. Uh, later on, four stowaways were found in that boat who came up from under the seats. Uh, they were described as Chinamen or Filipinos. Uh, well, I, I, I kind of, uh, <laughs> I don't like, but I find amusing the like, uh, kind of phrenology you could do in those days of just like best guessing it, <laughs> of just being like, yeah, no, somewhere, somewhere in this like two thousand mile area, you know, my opinion, I yeah. think. And, and and of course, these were almost certainly uh four of the six Chinese survivors of the sinking. Uh. At least mm. one of the, I don't know what, one of the other two was pulled from the water. In fact, I think he was possibly the last guy pulled from the water after the sinking. God. Uh, there was even a scene, a deleted scene in a movie where that guy was rescued. Mm. So, you know, a boat C, as it was lowered, you know, it was scraping along the hull because of the port list. Um, so they were trying to push ahead against it and uh, prevent damage. It was at this point that uh, Seed Nakid took this chance and jumped down into the boat and some women helped cover him up with their skirts. Brave man. Yeah. Brave uh, woman. Up on deck, a gun was also fired, apparently to keep other men back. Um, mm. Quick aside is that I didn't put it in my notes, but uh, you know, the, the, it's not really known if any of the officers shot themselves. Um, there's just, I, th I, don't I think th I think I might. I'd rather yeah. like th than hypothermia. Yeah, there's a, there's a few methods of death I could think of where I would rather simply just like. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, if it happened at all, or who is uh, nobody knows. Um, there were shots fired, and who, who the hell knows? Um, mm. but I didn't put that in my notes, so I can't go over it. Uh, yeah, well, no, no, nobody will ever know. You know, no, no one will know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I could talk for nine hours about it. We'll never. Know. It's, um, it, it, it is strange that it's like again one of those sort of like Edwardian like honorable methods of suicide is to like use the service revolver when like events have turned against you. You know, sort of like a you know Edwardian sipaku. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, by this point, water is creeping up the stairs that went down from like the bridge area to B deck. <clears throat> um. 
uh, at boat D, several crew, including quartermaster Bright, second officer Lightoller, were ordered to man the boat. You know, Lightoller said, uh, not damned likely, and jumped back onto the ship. Um, Lightoller was such a cunt, is the thing. Like, that that was also the source of his strength. Like, he survived yeah. the, like, uh, Dunkirk evacuation in the Second World War. Like, he, he was a very, uh, you know, a, a sort of very much man of steel sort of thing, but he was also an absolute dickhead to work with. Uh, apparently, he was also, I, if I'm recalling that it's Lightoller who did it, he was also a bit of a jokester. He, apparently, during the Boer War, he faked a Boer attack. Uh, and made people in the harbor. I don't know where it was. Uh, panic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just to play a joke. Mm. Um, when he was serving on the Medic. Uh, so, you know, around 2.02 a.m. for the last time, Captain Smith visits the Marconi suite. You know, Jack Phillips, Harold Bride are still hard at work. You know, trying to send out distress messages, even as water is getting closer. Um Smith released the men. He told them they've done their best and can do no more, and they better take care of themselves. And then he left. Um, Phillips didn't leave. He stuck to his work, um, mainly trying to contact like Carpathia and also a ship called Frankfurt had been trying to contact him. And he was like, you're a fool. Keep out. And do not interfere with our communications because, you know, Germans. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. I mean, that's that, that's sad, though, to like, you know, like you've given you've been given this sort of like honorable discharge here. Like that's the closest social sanction you're going to get. And you're still like, that's not enough for me. I'm going to I'm going to stay here and go down with the ship. Yeah. And, and later, Bride would recall of Phillips, you know, quote, he was a brave man. I learned to love him that night. And I suddenly felt a great reverence to see him standing there sticking to his work while everybody was raging about. I will never live to forget the work of Phillips for the last awful 15 minutes. Oh, it's very sad. Uh, by 2.05 a.m., Volksel is entirely underwater, and at this point, Titanic is going to be completely gone in just 15 minutes. We get a lot of stoic deaths at this point, which is sad because of how many of them were like wildly unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Around the time Boat D was being lowered, Captain Smith was seen on deck giving orders to a megaphone. Uh, apparently, first-class passenger Frederick Hoyt had approached Smith. He had known Smith for 15 years, and he just wanted to offer his sympathies, you know. Um, you know this, is, this is a terrible situation, isn't it? Uh, and then Smith suggested to Hoyt that he should go down to A-deck and see if a lifeboat is beside it, telling him to jump in, uh, and that he better do it soon. Uh, you know, Hoyt went down, but... Uh, you know, he, he found that D was still being lowered. He decided to jump off into the water in the hopes that he'd be picked up, and he eventually was. Meanwhile, mm. passengers Hugh Woolner and uh, a name I'm not going to try to say, uh, Moritz. Let's see here. Moritz Hakenbjörnström Stefansson. Yes. Um, they were on A deck waiting for the boat, and you know, when it reached the water, they both jumped in. And, uh, I, I I feel for Captain Smith at this point. Like none of this is hugely his fault, and like there's no way he could have survived this. Not yeah. not in the sense of like engineering, but in the sense of like there was no social route for him out of that boat. Like if he had survived that, he would have like been pilloried for the rest of his life. Oh yeah. Uh, it was absolutely like one hundred percent an expectation that like he would have been wildly dishonored if he had like survived this. I don't know if it reminds me of the, the captain of the Andrea Doria, right? Mm, Who was like yeah, determined yeah. to go down with the ship even after everyone was off the ship safely. Mm -hmm. uh, they yeah, had to be like absolutely. pulled from the boat. They're like, no, mm. no, everyone's off the boat. Uh, 
you you can leave. <laughs> uh, well, like we'll we'll see this with a lot of a lot of male survivors who are like just absolutely discredited for the rest of their lives, even if they had like had multiple witness you know descriptions of them behaving in like incredibly selfless ways. The just by the fact that they had survived at all uh, w- were seen as cowards. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, you know, of course, is not going to lead into any sort of understanding of warfare within the next two years, which <laughs> is going to, you know, decimate entire countries. <laughs> Masculinity, it's a weird time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Masculinity, oh. folks, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, just, just don't. <laughs> uh, say no to masculinity. Mm-hmm. To be avoided. Um, <laughs> uh, around 2.05 a.m., of course, uh, you know, as the, these guys were jumping off, uh, water was pouring over the bulwark and a deck and uh, that area quickly flooded. Um, you know, by the time boat D was pulling away, the ceiling of a deck had already reached uh, the water. Like when the bridge was very close to going under next, um, like Titanic was like a, most of the shit. Well, most of it almost was still out of the water at this point, but it was just going fast. Like water was pouring mm. in through the larger windows and the upper decks, like it, like it just it it went sub you know like uh exponentially faster at this point. Mm. Um, Titanic, but the faster it sinks, the faster it sinks. Yeah, uh, you know, up on the boat deck, light Tyler was now focused on getting collapsible lifeboat B off the roof of the officers' quarters, and uh, you know, Murdoch was doing the same uh, on the uh, and Moody on the other side with collapsible A. Now collapsibles A and B. You know, the other collapsibles were sitting on the deck, you know, the, by the davits, you could get them, uh, you know, relatively easily off the ship. And they did. Um, but A and B were on the roof of the officer's quarters, um, far yeah, away these, from any these davit. Aren't like, these aren't inflatables either. Like, they're, they're canvas and wood. You have to carry them. Um, it, yeah. It, 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 Titanic had a system where there were attachments to the guy wires on the funnels <clears throat> where you could raise the boats off. But, you know, either they didn't know how to use them or they didn't have time or, you know, it would have taken them forever. So it's just the most useless place to put lifeboats. <laughs> uh, at any rate, you know, collapsible C was launched at 2 a.m., uh, 43 aboard out of a capacity of 47. Collapsible D was launched at 2.05 a.m., 44 out of 47. And these were the last actual lifeboat loading uh, lowerings. Yeah, with those numbers, you can kind of like see the desperation there, you know? Yeah. Um, by now, people had definitely begun jumping off the ship uh, from the stern. Um, mm. You know, on the port side of the boat deck, Lightoller was still working with the crew to ready boat B. Um, in the Marconi suite, Phillips was making his final attempts to send out messages. Uh, Bride had put on his life belt <laughs> and stepped, uh, you know, he strapped a belt onto Phillips as he worked. Uh, Phillips then asked, um, then asked Bride to grab a coat and spare money from the cabin. When Bride walked back in, he found a stoker in the office trying to literally take the life belt off of Phillips' back. Um, oh, goddamn. Good lord. Um, you know, apparently Phillips is so engrossed in his work that he didn't even notice that this was happening. Uh, <sighs> that, that's gonna, that might stick with me for a while. Uh, you, know, he, you know, even though Bride was a smaller man, he just ran at the stoker and he knocked him out. He may have even hit him with an object. Uh, don't know. Mm. Um, and then, you know, at that point, Phillips and Bride just decided to abandon the, you know, the, their efforts and they left. Uh, when they got out on deck, you know, it was chaos. Uh, but the band was still playing at that point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> running to the last of their repertoire. 
Yeah. Uh, Phillips and Bride, you know, they separated and Phillips ran aft. And uh, that was the last Bride ever saw of him. Uh, mm. Phillips died for that. At, this, at about this time, you know, a large group of third class passengers had arrived from below decks via the Grand Staircase. You know, this is late in the sinking. I mean, the ship's almost gone. And suddenly this huge group of third class people is just comes up like only now. And mm. it, at this point, like the crew on the deck had assumed that like most of the women and children are gone. But this group was full of women and children. And it was like they must have been like, shit, where did these people come from? Mm. Oops. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't have, like, uh, you know, not evacuated this entire third-class section. Uh, either side of the officers' quarters, you know, men, uh, you know, place spars or oars against the side of the, you know, the deckhouse to create a slope to slide the boats down. Um, you know, it was around this time that the band began playing their last piece. Um, what it was, we'll never be sure. It could have been Song to Autumn or maybe Near My God to the... <sighs> Rock and Roll Part 2 by Glary Glesser. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, on the stern and poop deck, passengers basically from all classes were gathering and mixing at this point. Uh, it was here that Father Thomas Biles and Father Joseph uh, Perishitz were uh, you know, praying and granting absolutions to passengers. I better get some good-ass absolution yes. at that point. Yes. Like, Yeah, it's like, well, I'll give you a you go to confession and, you know, I, I'm just wondering if you if you can if if you confess and then they give you your penance prayers, you know, and then you have enough time to do them before the ship goes under. Well, like the thing is, a lot of Catholic theology around the dying is very liberal nowadays. But I wonder if this was before the point when you could give extreme unction to somebody who was like just accustomed. Like the current standard is accustomed to say some prayers, the lowest <laughs> they can make it. And I do wonder if it was that liberal then, or if it was just like, oh, nope, sorry, yeah, nope. You gotta do three. You gotta do three rosaries in fifteen minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you better fucking say that first. I hope you're good at pronouncing the word mulieribus. <laughs> you know, at around 2.10 a.m., after having apparently left the smoke room a while back, you know, Thomas Andrews was seen throwing deck chairs overboard, still trying to help passengers, uh, and then he was carrying a lifeboat to the bridge, supposedly. Uh, mess steward Cecil F uh, Fitzpatrick was crossing through the bridge, you know, he claimed to have seen Captain Smith talking to Andrews, saying, We cannot stay any longer. She is going. And then he fainted. Uh, supposedly. <laughs> um, mm. On the port side, forward around 2 13 a.m., Classable B was pushed over the side, but it landed upside down in the, in the water, which is already flowing up the deck at that point. Um, Oops. <laughs> and uh, there was no time. So they just abandoned efforts to do anything with that boat. On the starboard side, Murdoch had ordered the davits to be cranked back in in an attempt to ready them for collapsible A. Um, the deck here was still dry because of the uh, you know the heavy port list, so you know was, they had time still. How, how possible is it to walk on it though? By that point, uh, not too not too hard, but it would have been awkward. I think. Mm. Um, you couldn't play a game of squash on it. Yes. No. Um, you know, the crewmen freed and pushed the boat over, you know, it hit the deck pretty hard, but it was upright. Um, you know, uh, Moody had wanted to let the boat float away, but the others were like, no, let's attach the falls to it. So, you know, they hooked the boat up and they were trying to drag it up the deck and they just couldn't. Um, you know, meanwhile, Fitzpatrick, you know, he came to and, uh, you know, he began helping with a, and, you know, the, 
you know, they, they tried to ready the they tried to ready Abe and then water began bubbling up from the uh, stairwell that was nearby. And, uh, you know, at that point, it was like, there's no time left. Um, mm. Meanwhile, running aft, uh, Archibald Gracie uh, ran into a, uh, quote, massive humanity clamoring against the divider railing on the boat deck. Um, probably the same massive humanity that, uh, you know, the third class passengers that had come up earlier. Yeah, around 2.15, the boat deck, which had already been submerging forward, suddenly took a, quote, slight but definite plunge. Um, mm. Quick aside is uh, Smith and Andrew's fate. You know, it was long believed that uh, Captain Smith went, you know, went down with the ship, you know, standing in the bridge yeah, the, and all that. The, like, yeah. honorable thing, you know, the upright British officer sort of thing. Yeah, and, you know, meanwhile, it's, you know, it was long believed that Andrews was in the smoke room just staring at a painting the whole time until, it, you know, it ended. Um, mm. But, you know, after going through, like, uh, survivor accounts and all kinds of stuff and the timings of these things, you know, it's it, that doesn't seem accurate. Like uh, Smith is placed around and outside the bridge near the end. Um, some claim that they saw him go into the water, like jump into the water off the bridge wing uh, around this time. And, uh, you know, the smoke room, you know, Andrews was seen elsewhere after that. And the guy who saw him in the smoke room was like way, way. Like, he left the ship ages ago by now. Um, so. In all likelihood, Andrews wasn't there. Uh, some claim to see Smith and Andrews together on the bridge, and that they both entered the water together. So we'll never know what happened exactly. But I mean, it seems likely that, yeah, you know, it's not like in the movies. They probably went into the water. Mm. Mm. Um. Next slide. Finally. Hey. So you know, two fifteen, the boat deck plunge. Um. You know, at this point, the ship had pretty much lost any usable buoyancy and. The, the boat it started to go under really fast. It's so fast, in fact, that, you know, the, the crew, you know, the people working on the collapsibles found themselves in rushing water. And, you know, for a moment, it seemed like Titanic righted itself almost like maybe right rose out of the water slightly. But mm. then but then or maybe the 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 list evened out um, in any case, you know, immediately it just went back down. Uh, and this just sent a you know, by all accounts, a huge wave of water washing up the deck. Um, and this is where a bunch of stuff happens. And I'm just going to run through it, which is, you know, yeah, Gracie was caught by the wave and rode it until he caught hold of a railing. Uh, a passenger Gracie was with, Clinch Smith, you know, he, Gracie never saw him again. And also Windows is bugging me for updates. <laughs> uh, so you're going to hear that. Listen, it, 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 install Windows. Our, yes. our host is back. <laughs> Just, uh, just uh, a different computer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, by this time, passenger uh, John Thayer uh, and his uh, Jack Thayer, actually, I think, and his friend Milton Long had been uh, waiting on the boat deck to jump ship. You know, finally they went. Long slid down the side of the ship. Thayer jumped and. Uh, Oh, Long. fuck glissading down a whole fucking thing of riveted, uh, like, iron plates. Yeah. Fuck that. Well, yeah, because Long was never seen again. Yeah, no kidding. Jesus. Uh, you know, Scullion John Collins was helping a woman board collapsible A and holding one of her kids. When the wave hit, he lost grip of the child. Uh, mm. Meanwhile, passenger Alma Paulson and her four children, uh, they had been following around another passenger. And when the wave hit, they all got, you know, they got separated and then all of them died. Um, <sighs> at the collapsibles, the chaos of water, and, you know, it's. 
it's it's just it's a massive mess of confusion. Um, mm. you know, passenger- you're sort of like Bosch painting with more water in it. Yeah, yeah. Passenger George Rhymes and his brother-in-law Joseph Loring parted ways with Loring, you know, running aft and Rhymes jumping overboard. Loring was, you know, he was never seen again. Uh, you know, Rhymes survived, of course. Um, near the gym, you know, uh, first-class passenger Peter Daly. He's about to jump overboard when a woman stopped him saying, oh, save me, save me. Good lady, save yourself. Only God can save you now, he claimed to say. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she still she still begged him, so he took her by the arm and they both jumped as the wave washed over. On the port so side... keep her, motherfucker. <laughs> on the port side, passenger Henry Molson removed his shoes and went to jump into the water and tried to swim towards the light of the Californian. Um, previously, Molson had survived um shipwrecks in 1899 and 1904 uh you know in one case he swam away this time he wouldn't be able to swim away and he died yeah oh like Um, third time was not the charm for him yeah no uh you know as the wave continued moving aft and the ship sank faster you know these stories there, there must be like two dozen more of these stories like this i didn't add them to my notes but you know just so many people got taken out at this point or went into the water mm-hmm. um collapsible b was washed off the port side upside down uh you know capacity of 47 eventually t- um 29 would find their way aboard because uh, it still floated it was usable kind of um mm. collapsible a was washed off the starboard side upright yeah uh, the last technically the last boat off the titanic probably um you know Probably about thirty like, aboard. If, if, if you're like in this water, even if you're holding onto something that floats, you know, a half hour kills you, right? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, in the pantry on a deck, Chief Baker Charles Yalhan was still getting his drink of water, what or you know, liquor, <laughs> yeah, yeah, water, sure, absolutely. I am also drinking water now. I am on my fourth glass of water, and I'm having a delightful time. <laughs> uh, you know, he suddenly mm. he suddenly heard that's a cr- good water. Hmm. <laughs> Yalhin said. Uh, <laughs> Surprisingly spiced water. Uh, so, you know, he suddenly heard a crash as if something had been buckling in the ship or iron was parting. And soon after, a rush of people on the deck above. Uh, Yalhin went up on deck and he got caught up in the mass of people running aft. Eventually, he found himself all the way in the aft well deck. He would have had to jump down a couple of decks to do that. And then eventually on the poop deck and then eventually over the railing. Uh, during this time, he switched his watch across pockets and noticed it was a quarter past 2 a.m. Uh, as the bridge went under, second officer Lightoller jumped into the water and tried to swim for the crow's nest until he realized that was a dumb idea because the crow's nest was attached to the ship. <laughs> he said he got sucked down and then mysteriously blown clear, but that doesn't make any sense. Uh, well, he was brought, there was this uh, vent uh, in front of the, for, uh, the first funnel um mm. and it went down into the boiler room and what probably happened was he was near it when water started to flood into the the vent grating and he probably got pushed against it as it was flowing in and then yeah i got farted yeah. off the titanic how's he, it going yeah and, and then a rush of air probably just pushed him out uh but all he attributed it to thinking of a 91 psalm <laughs> <laughs> Uh, apparently, it's funny though because apparently, as he was drowning against the grating, uh, he recalled he was rather losing interest in things. <laughs> Edwardians, man. Yes. Uh, 
you know, after that, he grabbed hold of a rope on collapsible B and, you know, it eventually got on. Uh, Light Toller watched. He said that he saw a lot of people sliding down the decks and the piles, and he thought that def- some were definitely drowning. Um, you know, uh, as water rose above the officer's quarters, uh, it went up around the base of the first funnel. And these funnels are big and hollow and made of very thin steel. Um, mm. You know, once the water got up to a certain point, I think it just crushed the base of the funnel. So at about 2.16 a.m., the first funnel crumpled at the base and fell forward and to, to starboard, crushed a bunch of people uh, in the water. Um, it fell mere inches from collapsible B, and it made a big wave that pushed it clear of the ship. Um, same for collapsible A. Passenger Richard, uh, Richard Norris Williams had been swimming in the water near his father, who was about 15 feet away. Um, apparently, Richard watched as his, the funnel just bell on his father uh and you know he said that the funnel was still belching smoke and the funny thing was like apparently at the time he wasn't even so much shocked by the death of his father in front of him as he was just at how big the funnel was Mm. that makes sense i mean it's like sort of like beyond your capacity to like rationalize at the time yeah um, and of course, by now, the ship's power was pretty much on the verge of total failure, you know, with the lights glowing a devilish red. Um, the, the power was probably being supplied by the emergency dynamos. Um, you know, at this point, you know, the grand staircase is totally flooded. I don't I personally don't think there was a big crash through the dome like you see in movies and stuff. It would have been flooded up to the dome by that point, I think. Um mm. What exactly happened? I don't know. Uh, the dome is crushed in now and the stairs are collapsed. So it's anyone's guess. Uh, um, at around 2.17 a.m., water rose around the base of the second funnel, and that gave way in a similar way. It uh, got crumpled in. It probably detached. Uh, and I think it may have bobbed slightly upwards. And then it crashed down onto the roof of the gymnasium and fell to starboard and, of course, crushed more people. God damn it, dude. That's going poorly. Yeah. Uh. Um, I was trying to get one last rep in. <laughs> uh, so we can go to the next slide here. The messy breakup. Mm, uh, yeah. yeah. So the so the final angle of the ship is unknown. I mean, you know, it used to be like, oh, maybe it was forty five degrees, but uh, honestly, it's still a range. Like it could be twenty three, fifteen, sixteen, twenty six. Who the hell knows? Um, and mm. in, in any case, you know, stern the stern was well in the air by two eighteen a.m. and yeah. and it, it's 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 more of a force than that ship was ever designed to like hold together under. Yeah, and as such, it just splits in half. Yep. So at approximately two eighteen a.m., it reached uh, the peak hall stress and uh, it began to fail. Where exactly we don't know. Um, a lot of guesses on that. You know, like there's if there if you ever want people to murder you in the Titanic community, give your favorite breakup theory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna stake one out now. Um only one funnel above water. You know, passengers at the very least, they heard horrific groaning noises and all kinds of stuff coming from the ship, all kinds of cacophony. And uh you know, metal parting and all that. The lights, you know, they've been on all this time, finally went out. Um, there's disagreement about whether all lights went out or some or whatever, but uh, some mm. claim that at least one light was still on. Who knows? 
Made they were all light. on the same like um, emergency generator, emergency magneto thing from behind the bridge, right? Um, no, there was none behind the bridge. The uh, emergency dynamo was it. I forgot. I think it might have been in one of the. It was in one of the engine casings way aft. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, uh, but, uh, but like I, either that like final shot finally kills it once and for all. Yeah. Or like uh something slightly forward like gives it like one light left light. Yep. Uh, so I think there were some accounts that you know there were just a ton of sparks when it broke apart. Um mm. the breakup probably started forward of the third funnel, uh more or less a clean break. Um but it w- it wouldn't stay clean for long. The ship <laughs> put it, putting the Titanic in a cast so it can heal cleanly. Yeah, like uh, the ship basically broke apart. It it wasn't just in the two sections; it was many sections. Um, with the bow and the stern being the main ones, but several large chunks in the middle in the area of the break were just pulled apart. Um, see, so, you know, it broke into these several sections and uh. You know, uh, some of them may have broken away below the water, or maybe they started to fall away after uh, above water. Um, you know, I think there was at least one account that reported the ship appeared to break into three pieces. So who knows? Um, after the initial break, the stern fell or settled backwards into a level position somewhat. Uh, I th- the funnels probably fell on uh, each section, although it's not certain um, if they both did. Uh, the double bottom fractured during the break into basically in three places. Uh, the bow, you know, it, you know, uh, totally gone a buoyancy. It, it, it went down, pulled on it a bit. Um, mm. And then it detached. Uh, while this was happening, everything attached to the, uh, to the double bottom would have just fallen out. The, the last five boilers in boiler room one, those are all over the seafloor. Um, oh man! Wow. The, co- the coal bunkers between boiler rooms one and two completely obliterated, with their tons of coal just spilled out all over. Um, hey, and- but if you want to go down a bunch of like depth, free coal. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it would have been. Like, ev- everybody talks about like the like, um like low background radiation steel. No, more important, free coal. <laughs> free coal. It's yeah. like that. Go go and begging. Yeah. Um. But it's one of those to... like one of those like underwater like remotely operated vehicles with just has a big <laughs> shovel on the front of it. Oh god! I you think... know the funny thing is they did bring coal up. Really? They brought tons of coal up. Actually, well, not literal tons, but like they did bring a lot of coal up, and they would they were selling it too at the yeah, exhibitions. So hmm. literally, free coal. Yeah. Um, it's hard to understate though just how messy this was. Like. Picture boil the boiler room one. This entire this huge room with full of machinery and catwalks just literally ripped apart. Everything, mm. everything mm. ripped apart. Um, what you're telling me is that this this wreck on the seafloor may not be as full of skeletons as I had previously imagined, which is vastly disappointing. Oh, those would have been dissolved a long time ago, anyway. God yeah. fucking <laughs> damn it! I thought it was spooky. Nope. No, it's not spooky. It's not a grave. Mm. It's nothing. It's just a wreck. Uh. Uh, but yeah, at any rate, you know, the bow, you know, it just detaches from the stern. It goes down and it rips off a pretty good section of tank top plates with it. Um, 
It's thought that the two pieces of a double bottom held onto the stern as it went down uh, before they eventually detached and then you know went flying off way outside of the main wreck site. Um, mm. So, you know, <clears throat> as the stern flooded, sank lower into the water, ever-increasing angle, uh, still with a bit of a port list, probably. Uh, it turned in a corkscrew motion as it went down. Um, I I don't know if the stern ever reached fully vertical. Some claimed it did. Uh, who knows? It sank in really deep water, right? That 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 was one of the things that like uh complicated uh like any kind of like exploration or recovery of the wreck until relatively late. If I recall, about twelve thousand feet of water. Oof! Yeah, two and a half miles. You you absolutely need a sort of a drone to do that. Yeah. Then that's not even that's not even something you can put someone in a pressure suit for. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, you know, if you're down there and you like your sub fails, you're being turned into chunky marinara. Yeah, mm, mm. more of like a meatball. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh so you know, it, it, it's um. You know, the, the angle of the deck at this point would have been just too extreme. People would have been falling off all over the place. Um, mm. And, you know, for a moment after the breakup, it did seem as if the stern might float, um, but no. Nope. Um, you know, Cecil Fitz, Fitzpatrick watches the stern sink and the propellers are well out of the water, and he described the final plunge as a clean dive as ever was made by a fish. Uh, and then it went down with a swish. On the decks, you know, passengers are seen to still be clinging to decks and fittings like swarming bees and tumbling all around. Um, it, 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 the stern almost seemed to float there for a short time, you know, mm. mere moments, uh, you know, bobbing there for a little bit before it finally started to go under, you know, the air uh, spot starting to flood. Read a lot of read a lot about uh, about shipwrecks, uh, mostly in in a military context. Though, and the fact that it's a civilian ship sort of like um, hits different, you know. Yeah, yeah. We now uh, commit their mortal remains <laughs> to the deep uh, until that day when the sea shall give up her dead. You know. And with that, you know, the stern sank slowly in the water, and you know the the masts, the well deck, the poop deck gradually disappeared the propellers and then finally the fantail itself um uh you know that when that reached the water you know it disappeared under the surface with a gulp um supposedly it disturbed the water so little that chief baker charles yalhan who had been you know around that area at the time he claimed that uh he was able to step off without even getting his hair wet <laughs> but he was also <laughs> drunk like, what? So. Well, again, this is the this is the thing that you need to do is uh, as as I am right now. You need to drink a bunch of water. Yes, and then once you've drunk enough water that you can just sort of like escape without getting your hair mussed, then you just do that. I uh, I, yeah. ran, I ran out of water. <laughs> oh, you should you should you should get some more water. Yeah, well, I'd have to go to the store for that. Go to uh. the water store. <laughs> oh. Uh. So, hate when they ID me for water. <laughs> so uh, Bruce Ismay, you know, he was sitting in collapsible sea. He was turned away. He didn't watch. Uh, hard to blame him. Mm, um, no. He did not wish to see her go down, as he said. Um, the time was 2.20 a.m., April 15th, 1912. Um, and, and that was it. That was the, that was the sinking of the Titanic. Yeah. Effectively. Uh, it still had several minutes, a couple minutes to go to the bottom. 
Mm. Uh, so, you know, the bow section had descended at about probably 30 miles per hour at a stabilized downward angle. The bow, you know, the it plunged into the seabed. Um, as the water rushed past, it ripped a bunch of stuff off. It smashed the mast backwards. You know, the bow impacted the ocean floor. It dug deep into the mud. Uh, the aft end slammed down and the back of the bow was broken. Um, otherwise relatively intact. Uh, other than maybe a down blast of water. The breakup mm. on the stern, on the other hand, was absolutely terrific. Like, horrific. This more like sort of like yeah. debris field that it leaves behind. Yeah, in fact, we can go to the next slide for this. Uh, Looking like the surface of the moon. Oh, uh, yeah. He, yeah, um, so, you know, the the stern... You know, it, basically any remaining sections of the middle, uh, that middle area, they just fell away or got ripped away. No, they're uh, just gone. They're just confetti. Yeah, the aft grand staircase was obliterated. the The floor was, uh, you know, ripped right out of the reception room. The boat deck peeled up and in, uh, in, in in places and went over the side or detached. Uh, all plating detached. The engine room was stripped of its machinery except for the engines. Um, the forward cylinders of the engines had been torn off in the breakup earlier. Uh, the poop deck peeled up and aft. Um, entire sections of the aft well deck just ripped off the ship. Vents, machinery, everything just off. Um, literally thousands of pieces, just from both sections, just countless tiles and all kinds of stuff just littered everywhere. Even mm. insulating cork. Uh, apparently after the breakup, the, there was a, just a ton of cork floating on the surface of the ocean. Um, yeah. yeah, so, you know, eventually the stern slammed into the ocean floor at probably a lesser angle. Uh, it, dig its, it, it dug its stern frame into the mud and the wing propeller bossings got bent upwards. Um, you know, at, at that point, the, re, the, the, the weak hull just, you know, it splayed out and it's just an absolute mess. Just a complete mm. mess. Um, even the turbine engine room got exposed. Uh, and yeah, once all the debris had settled, it, it was just a massive field, a mess. Like the bow section doesn't have much around it, but the stern does. Like on the right hand side, you see the stern is on the left of the image, and everything out to the right of it that's all pieces of the ship, and that's not even all of it. Yeah, and you can sort of see the like scale of how far down it is by how far this is scattered. Like it, it's just such. A incredible mess, mm. um, and you know they found all you know it's in it, it, you know it's a you know, a lot of it's still identifiable too. It's kind of amazing, and uh, apparently there are even funnels down there still. Mostly the stuff rotted. that they brought up is just insane. Um, maybe not any sort of like Whitney Houston, Kevin Costner necklaces, <laughs> but like, uh, you, like as as I say, you remember uh, Colonel Putin's like necklace, uh, not necklace, um, like um, his wallet with like his cards in it. That that was brought up from the wreck. Uh, and that survived. It's on the passport of the iceberg. <laughs> Why was this iceberg Saudi Arabian? <laughs> All right, so who who did Titanic yeah. then? <laughs> Titanic was perpetrated by our own government. The lo the looming iceberg, yeah. <laughs> no, it was clearly Bush, obviously. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so next slide, I guess. 
we're getting, getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. Ah, Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Oh, I know a Pepsi, actually. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, by the time of the sinking, though, yeah, again, the water temperature is 28 degrees, which I was at the uh, the Pigeon Forge Titanic Museum, and they had this. They have this little uh, tub of water in there. It's, uh, I think, the same temperature, or at least very near. And I put my hand in that, and it hurt so badly, mm. instantly. Like yeah. it's horrible. Like I can't imagine being dunked into that hole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Lightoller described it as a thousand knives being driven into your body. God damn, this very cold. Um, yeah, mm. you know, at this temperature, you know, you're rendered helpless immediately by shock, and you know, within minutes, you'll be able. You're not going to be able to do much. Uh, mm. You know, you'll be dead within an hour if you're lucky, and you know, uh, half an hour. Uh, yeah, this, the, the really grim stuff is hearing like uh, the sort of the arguments, the fights on the lifeboats that had gotten away about whether or not to go back for more survivors, and like a, a, another thing that's more recurring from sort of military shipwrecks that I'm familiar with is like hearing cries for help and then hearing fewer of them and then hearing none, um, and that that sort of like awareness that you've sort of like allowed that to happen. Uh, is is very very grim, yeah. And you know the people in the water, you know they were screaming and yelling and they're fighting each mm. other for pieces of debris and who knows what. Um, you know, once the ship was gone, it was just hundreds of people all defend for themselves until they froze, um, yeah. or drowned, um, because you know eventually you're gonna lose consciousness. Yeah. Um, it's grim stuff. Yep. So yeah, over the course of the next half hour to an hour, the screaming just subsided. Uh, the people mm. were in the lifeboats not too far away, and you know that they could hear the cries from the water. And uh, you know, a lot of the survivors said that was something that would stick with them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Um, we have the sort of like the unsinkable Molly Brown at this point. Uh, is is her sort of maintaining order on her lifeboat? Yeah. Apparently, she even threatened Quartermaster Hitchens. He was being a little bitch. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't don't be a little bitch then. Is my opinion. I think I don't know. I mean, in the movie, he threatened her by saying uh, there'll be one less on this boat if you don't shut that hole in your face. But I think he said something like that in real life. I don't remember. Mm, yeah, I think that might even be verbatim. Yeah. They, there's a surprising amount of uh, stuff in the in the Titanic movie that's verbatim or almost. Mm. Well, the thing is, James Cameron is also very. This is like a special interest for him. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Which is, you know, a, a shame that he then made a movie that bad with Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't watch that one honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know, the people in the boats, <clears throat> you know, they, the consensus among most of them was that, you know, it, it, it was too dangerous to go back and look for people, you know, they're going to swamp us and drag us down and kill us. And it's our lives now. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, again, literally lifeboat ethics. Yep. Um, you know, by now, Lightoller pulled himself into collapsible B and Archibald Gracie too. And, uh. Uh, That's some strength to be doing that after having been in, you know, sort of hypothermia-inducing water to, like, lift your own weight up a wet rope onto a boat. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as the sounds died down, the passengers across uh, the, 
some of the boats gathered together um uh under officer low uh, yeah, I know he had some of them like lash themselves together uh, for safety. Yeah, some of the boats were tied together, and then uh, he took boat fourteen with some crew, and he rode back into the uh, area of the sinking to look for people. But like they were mostly gone by yeah, then. But but yeah. by that point, it's just over. You know, you're gonna find bodies at best. Yeah, uh, they only picked up a few, including again. I think the last person was uh, one of the Chinese men who was picked up. Hmm. Um, and of course, uh, Baker Yaohan, he was in the water. Uh, I forgot under the exact circum what exact circumstances. Nicely, nicely toasted at that point. He's yeah. just yeah. yeah. He's he's I, drunk as fuck. He's like just floating there in his life raft, completely drunk. Uh, and yeah, no, he's gonna be fine. I I just I, honestly, Yaohan is my favorite character in the whole Titanic. Oh yeah, easily, story. easily, just hit the booze, take an, a nice easy <laughs> step off the wreck, and then wake up in New York. Easy. Yeah. Speaking of which, I am gonna go and piss again. Uh -oh. I'll be right uh, back. All right. Uh, meanwhile, hour five. <laughs> Oh dear. Well, we can. Uh, yeah. Oh, wait. Well, no, we're still on this slide. Yeah. But yeah. So the Carpathia arrives at around three thirty a.m., uh, shooting off a uh, rockets to signal her arrival, <clears throat> and you know lifeboats start to uh, row towards it. Lifeboat two is the first to be picked up at about four ten a.m., uh, forty minutes after the rocket sighting. Lifeboat twelve is the last one to be picked up by Carpathia at around eight ten a.m. Um, many ships had heard and answered the distress calls, reports of the sinking. One of those was the Olympic. Uh, apparently, Olympic uh, initially uh, intended to sail towards the uh, site, uh, but I believe they were told to stay away. And I think one of the reasons for that might have been, you know, Olympic was an identical copy of Titanic. How creeped out would you be if you just stepped onto a ship that was exactly like the one that just sunk? Oh, shit. I don't want this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Olympic stayed away, and by 8:50 a.m. April 15th, Carpathia finished picking up lifeboats, uh, survivors, and uh, you know had looked briefly for people in the water, but you know obviously that's fruitless. So Carpathia set sail for New York. Um, I have to excuse me, I had a few too many glasses of water. <laughs> uh, you know, Carpathia arrives in New York on April 18th, docking at Pier 54 at 9:52 p.m. Um, by then, news of Titanic sinking was all over the world. Like it's the only thing anyone could talk about. Um, mm. It even started. Reminds me of an, another apocryphal thing of like an Aberdeen local newspaper who, whose headline on the disaster was "Aberdeen man, comma others killed in shipwreck." <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that is um. Wow. I'm sure it's not true, but it does amuse me to think of that sort of like <laughs> level of parochialism. Um, God, I kind of wish it was true. That would be funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, you know, even before Titanic sank, the news was spreading like wildfire, as they say. Um, you know, which might have helped melt the iceberg. Uh, this is true. <laughs> yeah. So you know, by the fifteenth, you know, everyone knew Titanic was gone. Um. You know, it was a new story of the day. Like that day, someone, the first woman had even uh, crossed the English Channel via plane and nobody knew about it because all they could talk about was Titanic. Mm. This was like uh, 20th century 9 11. Yes. Yeah, basically. Um, 
you know, most survivors are let off Carpathia at the pier, but third class passengers, uh, I think they had to wait wait there uh, to be processed. Uh, you know, they didn't go through Alice Island, but they still had to be processed. You um, have to change all of your surnames. You have to make sure. Imagine yeah, you after have to make- all that, you get sent back. Oh, oh and Jesus! That, and that happened. And that happened to the Chinese men. They got sent back because of the exclusion Fucking act. Hell. Oh, Lord. Oh. Uh, in fact, the Chinese men is kind of a sad story. I mean, uh, they got they, they were no most, kidding. They were mostly lost to history for well a long time. It, only recently, there was a documentary called The Six that came out that talks about the them, uh, which incidentally, mm. uh, uh, I did some graphics for. So that's that was interesting. Mm. Um. But um, yeah. So <clears throat> now, not great. You know, it's yeah. Well, welcome to our country, unless you're, you know, mm-hmm. unless we don't want you or you're Chinese. Yeah. yeah. So absolutely, <laughs> America is a horrific country. I have to say. I've heard. I've heard this. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, outside the pier, there were reportedly you know, thirty-five ambulances at one point, and also uh, a crowd of uh, possibly thirty thousand. Mm. Well, like, I, I, again, because there was nothing better to do, that was like your only entertainment at that point, was to go and see a bunch of like people with frostbite or hypothermia. Yeah. Uh, next slide. So, you know, the body recovery, uh, you know, commenced not too long after. Four yeah, ships. we can talk about a single Canadian man inadvertently uh, devising the format that would be used for all, like, mass casualty identification afterwards. Really? Oh, why don't you talk about that? Absolutely. As soon as I Google it to remember, <laughs> to make what? sure I remember the right guy. Thomas Biles? No, oh. that's not right. That's not right. Come on, find me the fucking well, guy. While, while you look for it, I'll run through real mm. quick, which is that, you know, the four ships, you know, they were chartered by the White Star Line, the, the McKay Bennett, the CS Minia, a cable ship, uh, the CGS Mott's uh, Magni, and the uh, SS uh, Algerine. Uh, in, mm. to- in total, approximately 334 bodies were recovered from the ocean by the ships. Um, though this number varies depending on the source, this is only about 23% of the total dead. Um, other ships not tasked with recovery did come across bodies. Uh, for example, the SS Bremen, you know, passed through the area on April 20th and the captain, uh, Germans, yeah, Captain Wilhelm, uh, reportedly said that there were men, women, and children all had life preservers on. I counted 125, then grew sick of the site. Founder John Henry Barnstead, the registrar of Har- of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, who was already like very much at the end of his career? He was twenty. He was uh, excuse me. He was sixty-seven. Um, he coordinated the retrieval, cataloging, and burial of Titanic victims, uh, devising a system of cataloging mass disaster remains still in use. Uh, each body is placed in a sealed bag, stenciled with a unique number. Uh, everything else is destroyed to avoid souvenir hunters, and then they place the personal belongings in a sealed bag. And then they make a description of absolutely sort of everything on the body, including distinguishing marks. And then you sort of like ID from there. And that's that's still been in use. Like they identified Titanic victims from this in two thousand and one. Wow. Absolutely. And just like this thing that you can like do as a hobby, essentially, is like invent this method of cataloging mass death. Is it's very bleak, but it's almost inspiring in some ways. 
I guess in a way, it's just another one of those little things that Titanic ended up inadvertently causing to happen that we just do now. Well, the fun thing is he managed to get to use this again a second time after the Halifax explosion. Ew. <laughs> yeah, directly in his backyard. Oh. That's no good. <laughs> um, mm. So, you know, after that, two separate inquiries are set up in the wake of the disaster, one in America led by Senator uh, William Alden Smith. I have uh, something about this one, oh particularly, boy. which was like, it was ridiculed in the UK, uh, partly for like sort of partisan reasons, but also because Smith was sort of like uh, autodidactic about this. And so he asked a lot of questions that seemed very basic. And so he spoke to, to Lowe, who I think was the fifth officer, and Smith asked him, do you know what an iceberg is composed of? And Lowe said, well, I suppose, ice, sir. Uh, and that got such a laugh at the hearing that it was reported in British newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> My understanding of that it was that it was just like a weird standard question that was being asked, but it sounds so stupid. Yeah, yeah. What what's an iceberg made of? Uh, well, ice. 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 Distinguished from other kinds of bergs, like rockbergs or woodbergs. <laughs> well, his next question was, <laughs> have you ever heard of an iceberg being composed not only of ice, but of rock and earth and other substances? <laughs> so, yeah, that was clearly where he was leading with this, but the yeah, no. The interesting thing is icebergs can have, like, uh, rocks and stuff embedded in them from, like, the, the mm. crap they pick up from the glaciers. Mm. Well, in this case, uh, Lowe did not think so, and so Smith was ridiculed in Britain for this. <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah, and of course the one in Britain was led by Lord Mercy. Um, broadly, both uh, inquiries reached similar conclusions. Um, the number of lifeboats that regulations called for was vastly out of date. Captain Smith failed to heed ice warnings to a satisfactory degree. The lifeboats are not crewed properly or filled with capacity. Uh, the collision happened because Titanic sailed into an ice field at high speed both also heavily criticized Captain Lord and the Californian for his lack of action, rightfully so. Um, additionally, mm. they didn't find faults. Uh, they didn't really find fault elsewhere. Um, you know, like, <clears throat> neither found negligence by the companies involved, <clears throat> you know, for whatever faults of the White Star Line or anyone for, you know, maybe not being enthusiastic about having more boats. They didn't really do anything wrong, per se. Mm. Um, yeah. The company, you know, the companies had followed standard practices of the time, however short-sighted yeah, so they may you, have been. You can't sue White Star Line. Yeah. <laughs> um, the disaster could only really be categorized as an act of God. Um, the British Very convenient. A mysterious act of God's love. Once again. Uh, the British inquiry found Smith simply <clears throat> followed long-standing practice, uh, which had been which had not, which had not been up uh, on safe up to that point, and that. You know, they pointed out that 3.5 million passengers have been carried over the last decade with only 73 lives lost in accidents. <laughs> Until now. Until now. Uh, Titanic we, is... We, we got some... Mm. It's an outlier and should not be counted. It's a black swan, yeah. But we got, we got some changes from this. Not least, my favorite named organization in the world, uh, as we see, if we look at this um, this US Coast Guard, Hercules, in the bottom middle here, we have the International Ice Patrol. The coolest yeah. sounding job for the most boring sounding thing. 
uh, now mostly staffed by Americans, but like the idea is you report on the locations of icebergs so this doesn't happen again. Yeah, and um, you know, in addition to that, the uh, I, that's uh, you know it, it, that was established in 1914, and then also at the same time, the uh, uh, the, the Solace Treaty, the uh, what was it, saving of life at sea. Yeah. Um. So you know, and, and even today, that you know, there were different versions. You know, in 1929, 48, 60, 74, 88, and so on. With updates, and that's the that's the main sort of guiding regulations uh, treaty for safety of ships today. Now, currently being wildly disregarded by uh, British Home Secretary Priti Patel in the English Channel, mm. uh, but yes, no, still still international law as much as that's a thing, um, and places a sort of responsibility, a duty of care on masters of all ships to to save life where they can. Uh, which is, of course, would never be flouted since. Yeah. Next thing. Well, now we've got to get to the James Cameron aspect, Ooh. which is finding the damn thing again. Yeah, so... Because for the longest time, it had just disappeared into history. Yeah, there were so many ridiculous schemes to find it. Like, even before they even had a hope of finding it, people are like, whoa, what if we threw dynamite down there and blew it up and then it floated to the surface <laughs> or something? What if filled it with foam, ping pong balls, whatever. There's no way you could erase that. Like, you raise it, it just falls apart into dust. Yeah, no way. Um, and, I, mean, the, I mean, least of all, like, the stern. I mean, it's already falling apart. <laughs> It's very like I I don't know. It's compelling to people, I guess, the idea that like we can raise this thing, but it, like what it's created is this sort of like time capsule of like nineteen tens life, I guess. I, I I mean, what are you gonna do once you've raised it? Like, what are you gonna put it in a museum? I guess. I think the more mm -hmm. pressing uh, issue would be to find the iceberg and bring it to justice. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, go like Steve Zissou, you're gonna take some dynamite and you're gonna blow that iceberg look, look, the fuck up. Look, look listen, listen, we, we've been getting justice against the iceberg by putting sh shit in the atmosphere That's for true. decades yeah. now. <laughs> Absolutely. We are melting icebergs faster than that iceberg could possibly have imagined. <laughs> So, you know, the discovery of the wreck, you know, <clears throat> it was finally discovered on September 1st, 1985 by a joint U.S. and French expedition, um, you know, aboard the ship uh, Nor, RV Nor, um, you know, the top image there. Uh, you know, the, the American side was led by Dr. Robert Ballard and the French led by Jean-Louis Michel. Uh, the mm -hmm. the and again, you had to use these like remotely operated vehicles to do it. It's an early example of drones doing something humans can't. Yeah, and they basically they, yeah, you know they they kind of towed this uh, vehicle. Uh, I think it was, I don't remember if it was called Argo or Angus or something like that. Uh, back and forth over the ocean, basically in a lawnmower uh, kind of motion, and they did this uh, over you know, a good bit uh, on you know multiple days covering different areas, you know whatever the last coordinates were. Um, and you know they were starting to lose hope, I think. But you know, finally they started coming across debris, and then they found you know one of the boilers, and you know they grabbed a photo of one of Titanic's boilers, and it's like, yep, that's it. Uh, and they eventually found mm. like the rest of the wreck too. I don't um, like how much more uncomfortably wide that American flag is than that French flag. <laughs> you know, yeah, that 
that it's is like compensating uh, for something. Yeah, that is a little weird, isn't it? Mm. Um, interesting thing too is that uh, you know it wasn't known at the time, but uh, Ballard was doing work. You know, he was out there basically uh, documenting two uh, U.S. nuclear subs that had sunk. Uh, huh. And yeah, but that was top secret at the time. So the public cover of it was that he was searching for Titanic, and you know the government basically told him, "Yeah, you know, just look for Titanic." You know, supported him on that. Um, it would have been awkward mm. if the nuclear sub had like sunk directly on top of the Titanic. <laughs> they had to blur out those images. <laughs> I can't show you this. <laughs> uh, but hey, you know, because the sub sunk, we found Titanic in a way. So, yeah. Great. Thanks. Thanks again to the Cold War for you know driving innovation. Um, but of course, as we know, the fact that uh, this this finding of Titanic exists in the popular imagination through the Kevin Costner Whitney Houston movie Titanic. Uh, there's a lot of like sort of like popular culture Titanic. Like there's so many fucking Titanic movies. Um, <laughs> Yes. About which I mostly want to talk about the Nazi one, right? Because this was one of the great sort of like pre war pieces of propaganda. And it entirely depends on this like fascist idea of masculinity that like uh, J. Bruce Ismay in particular is like this sort of corporatist, because you have this like pre war Nazi like sop to the left, this corporatist, uh, extremely Jewish, uh, self interested, cowardly, uh, sort of like uh, a corporate figure who is like uh, opposed by the stalwart masculinity of the bridge crew. And it's just, it's not the case, but it, it was a very compelling narrative. And it was one that in particular like appealed to sort of like older people who remembered this happening and who remembered this happening being reported in ways that they sort of like half remembered and that was kind of unclear. And that sort of like, uh, lacuna was enough to like e enable it to be used for fascist propaganda very effectively. Mm. Mind you, of course, the fascists then had their own Titanic with the Wilhelm Gustloff, but that's another episode. Oh boy. Uh, but yeah, the pop culture is just, there's just so much crap out there. I mean, I, I heard a figure that uh, out of like the top three written about subjects is the bible the american civil war and titanic and i don't know if that's mm. true but it sounds true it's this sort of like generational trauma almost um and it, it, which is strange for something that like I, I mean okay it killed a lot of people but like relatively speaking it's a it, it's a small thing but the effect that it had i think largely is due to like the telegraph and due, due to like mass media its effect got magnified and it was the first sort of big news event to become this like global event yeah i mean it's <clears throat> i think I think Titanic marked uh, basically the death of a previous era and the start of a mm. new one. Yeah, it's this yeah. like loss of innocence almost. And you know, basically the brave new world. You know, th things started changing radically after Titanic. Not because of it, but you know, like it just happened to happen. Uh, I think for the most part. Oh yeah, part. it's it, yeah. it's like a wildly artificial narrative because as we as we know, Olympic and Britannic sailed through the First World War, so did Lusitania and all of the others. Um, but like, 
uh, just this 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 idea of the, like this sort of like carefree lifestyle being lost, and then the world is like plunged into warfare is is it's very compelling in its own way. And, you know, the world just uh, you know the old world went down with Titanic, and um, mm-hmm. you know, then with it, you know, in its place, just a ridiculous amount of pop culture. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> or this this sort of like ancient chivalric thing of like John Jacob Astor or uh, Isidore Strauss is replaced with sort of modernity, and it's it's completely erased that the fact that they died was because of this sort of like modernist conveyance that they were sailing on. And, and you know the funny thing about you know the like the pop culture is that so you know I wanted to kind of run through a couple of these movies too because oh please yeah yeah like uh. So the first Titanic movie was saved from the Titanic. It was made 29 days after Titanic sank. Uh, wow. <laughs> Instant press books. Uh, uh, not any different, you know. It was sort of straight to DVD thing. It was co-written and starred Dorothy Gibson, who was a Titanic survivor. Jesus. Uh, it's now a lost film, and uh, I think, uh, don't quote me, but I, I think Gibson suffered a mental breakdown after that. Mm, no kidding. Oh, hey, these guys from Hollywood want to make you relive the worst day of your life uh, a month after it happened. Yeah. Uh, another notable uh, Titanic movie made that year was, uh, and I'm going to butcher this German, In Nacht und Eis. Uh, mm-hmm. No, pretty close. Oh, good. Uh, I there, There's like a bunch of Germans that work on my uh, Titanic project, so like, uh, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that was made in 1912, In Night and Ice. Uh, German silent film. Uh, it used to be lost, but it was found in 1998. So cool. And then, mm. of course, you know, 1943, the, the Nazis. Big one. Yeah, the sort of like the, the the big Ufa project. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I, it's wild retcon stuff. Like the idea is that there's the of the of the bridge crew of the of the deck department. There is this German officer who like independently up, you know, like sort of like upholds Teutonic standards of manhood and manliness, uh, but is overruled at every turn by Smith, who is this sort of like English buffoon, and by Esme, who is this sort of like anti-Semitic caricature. Yeah. It's a wildly influential film. I, I, I highly recommend watching it, but it's like repulsive. It's a difficult watch, but you should do it. Yeah, apparently some of the singing footage from that uh, was even used in the, a later movie. I think the, mm. I don't don't remember which one. Uh, there were so many Titanic movies. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, in the you know the Nazi film in particular, it was the uh, apparently the first one to be called Titanic. You know, just Titanic. Uh, and, mm. and also the first to mix fictional subplots with uh, characters in the Titanic story. Mm. Um, of course, we all know about the Cap Arconia. Um, it was, uh, you know, it's you know the ship itself that it was filmed on was sunk apparently mistakenly by RAF uh, pilots and uh, killing about five thousand people, a lot of them prisoners of war, uh, which is you know Oops. several times the fifteen hundred that died on Titanic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh so you know that's an oopsie daisy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, then there was Titanic nineteen fifty-three starring Clifton Webb and Bar- Barbara Stanwyck. Uh a sort night- of cookie cutter American film, yeah. yeah. A Night to Remember in nineteen fifty-eight. And it was more of a British docudrama, um, based on Walter Lord's book of the same name, uh, starring Kenneth Moore, often considered one of the most 
historically accurate Titanic films. And it's hard to argue with that. You know, I watched it recently and it's surprising how much kind of stands up to like the actual story. And, you know, like, mm. for example, the way they show the boiler room scene, it's, you know, they, they don't all go running for the, you know, the watertight door. It's just, it kind of plays out more realistically. And like, it really is a pretty decent film when it comes to well, Titanic. For 58, for 58, you have a lot of extras who have like recently served on warships, which is to your right there, I think. Yeah. And they, they had the benefit also of like a couple of survivors of Titanic still being around to advise. Um, mm. And, you know, they, one of the few exceptions to accuracy was that there's no breakup scene because you know, they still thought it sunk intact by that point. And mm. in now that even by 1980, you know, they hadn't found the wreck yet. So we got Raise the Titanic, which was adapted from Clive Cussler's novel, the same name, about an attempt to raise the ship, you know, to recover this mineral for a weapons defense program. Um, <laughs> the book, the book was a lot more exciting than the movie. There was like a battle in the first class dining saloon and, uh, uh, there's like a sex scene in one of the suites. <laughs> yeah, Just so, off with all the mold and mildew. <laughs> yeah. The sort of grain of truth here is that, that, you know, these shipwrecks are valuable. Titanic is sort of too hysterically valuable, but like that, that sort of like low background radiation steel. Because uh, one of the fun things about bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki and then doing uh, a decade or two of atomic tests is that all of the steel that we can make now has some level of background radiation in it that is significantly higher than uh, previously. And so if you want to make steel that has a low background radiation, like for MRI machines or things of that nature, you have to get it off of a sunken battleship. Well, we're actually pretty close to, um, with the nuclear test ban treaty, we're pretty close to the point where we can make new low background steel, or at least uh, that is... My impression Yay. may actually already be there. Um, Yay! We don't have to like dive down to the fucking like Scarpa Flow fleet. <laughs> um. So yeah, you know, of course, that was a ridiculous film. And then we get to. Well, actually, in nineteen ninety. Wait, shit! That's that's still. Jurassic, uh, Jurassic Park. Jurassic yeah, Park, yes. Uh, Jurassic you, Park. you son of a bitch, you actually did it. Uh, well, yeah. I, I, actually, uh, there was, a, there was right before Titanic came out, you know, in the main movie, uh, there was a miniseries for TV that came out in 96. Uh, it starred huh. Tim Curry and, uh, oh, I forgot what her name was. Um, just an Tim, absolute... Tim Curry is a very fun choice for this, by the yeah, way. Yeah, he, he played a... Uh, he played, like, this evil steward on the ship. And, uh, this uh. is pretty horrific. There was, uh, yeah, it was... It's kind of not that great. Um, but then we get to uh, 1997. <laughs> um, the, um, the James Cameron, Whitney Houston, uh, Kevin Costner movie... Which got some stupid number of Oscars. Uh, 11 Oscars are Academy Awards, as they say. Ooh. Um, it's a good number. And, mm. you know, it, it, uh, it was the highest grossing film of the time for 12 years. Um, it was also the most expensive at 200 million. And it was almost, it seemed, when it was being made, it seemed like, like the, 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 the executives at the studios had no faith in it. They thought it was going to fail. They thought, why are we doing this? Why are we giving Cameron so much money? James Cameron loves diving. Yes. It's true. He he got 
you know, he just got super interested in Titanic because, you know, even before that. And, um, and, you know, and all this is to say nothing of like all the other crap that's come up. I mean, all the video games, musicals, books, songs, board games, arcade games, who knows what, uh, you know, everything that's based on Titanic story, even the, the game I've been working on for like 12 years. <laughs> um, like it, it's my whole life is Titanic. My Twitter letter, my Twitter header is not a lie. Um, mm, that's why we get a six hour Titanic episode. Yes. Mm -hmm. In three parts. This, this <laughs> down here, looks like a setup for some kind of Gilbert and Sullivan operetta about the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> Um. So you know it's Jay Bruce is my sing. Yeah. <laughs> so you know what we're left with is you know just this story that's um oh also uh, that picture of that guy in the top that that's uh he's hauling the model that was used in Raise the Titanic and <laughs> it was like fifty five feet long. Wow. <laughs> maybe maybe that's all of our fate is like if we are remembered at all, it's dimly as this sort of like morality thing. Yeah, and, and you know, it's Titanic has this effect on people. I like I said, I've been obsessed with this damn ship for most of my life at this point. Um and I don't know why. And the same for I think most others who are into Titanic. Like it's it's strangely compelling, isn't it? I mean, you know, I I, I know that it's got you know this episode is five and a half hours long, so far it's going to be longer with yeah. all the other stuff. But like, uh, you know, it's not for no reason. I mean, no, yeah. there's so much to this story that you know, like, even with this, I think we've left a ton of stuff out. It's it's one of those sort of historical events where like the people who were there and who were around it and who were alive at that time compiled so much information that it's like one of those inflection points where like you can find details on so much at that point because it fascinated people so much. Uh and like that that's so rare in history until modern until modern times that it's very it's very compelling in itself. Yeah, and you know, even on just a basic level, there's just something kind of I don't know, alluring or mysterious about the ship. And you know, I, that's been a big area of mine. Is just, you mm. know, I, I remember, you know, uh, I, I was living in Arizona when I first kind of got interested in Titanic. The marketing of the movie was going around, and um, I <clears throat> I remember getting like a 3D puzzle of the ship. And I saw the movie, uh, you know, a few years, uh, a couple of years later, when it was on VHS. Now, back when that was a thing, the Zoomers for you Zoomers, you know, the VHS the tapes. Just so you know. Uh, <laughs> so you know, and, and my interest just exploded after that, and I just don't know. Uh, you know, here I am. You know, however many years later, I've been trying to recreate this ship with the you know some other people. You know, with the Titanic honor and glory, and you know that's what a lot of the images you've seen here, the CG images, uh, have been from. And I don't know, and you know, within all of us, you know, all the people who are working on that, same thing, you know, just why, you know, why, why spend that much time on this? Why be this interested in Titanic? And I've tried to explain it, and I still can't. You know, I'm going to be honest. I never really got into it. 
<laughs> hey, it's not for everyone. Yeah, yeah, I've never been a big Titanic guy. <laughs> uh, you know, some people are immune. I think I think we need more Hindenburg content. That's my opinion. Um, that that I, I can agree with that. Uh, oh, I I I uh, hmm. uh, I know someone who has a a piece of the Hindenburg. Uh, I once held a piece mm. of the Hindenburg and the Titanic in my hand simultaneously. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And like bang them together, like now kiss. <laughs> yeah, basically. <sighs> well, what did we learn from this six-hour experience? Uh, double hull, more if lifeboats. You, if you if you get a chance to get off a boat in Ireland, do it. If you, uh, if, you, if, if you're offered a place on the lifeboat, take it. <laughs> Yeah, if you ever have an opportunity to dress up as a woman, take it. I mean, I've been doing that all my life. <laughs> uh, you know, if you're ever anywhere, yeah, if you're ever anywhere and people are like, uh, you know, I think we hit something, you might want to get out as soon as possible. Uh, yeah. Know your exits, know your escape plan. Uh, oh. This has been the Titanic. We have a segment on this podcast called Safety Third. There we do. Shake hands with Dave. Justin, do you want me to read this one, or would you prefer to I'll, read I'll it? I'll read it. I think I can do this. <laughs> okay. Greetings, Justin and Alice, and hey, Liam. Liam's not here. Liam has left. Sorry. Right. I'm an arborist in a particularly under-regulated state in the southern half of the United States. Ooh, I've, dangerous. I've accrued enough material over the course of my career to keep this segment chugging along for months, which we don't have time for. Um, yeah. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. But in the interest of keeping it to about a page, more or less, I won't tell about the time or two I've nearly killed myself, and will instead focus on an anecdote that makes someone else look like an asshole. No, nice. No, not the guy who told me if I ever fell off a ladder, I was fired before I hit the ground. Another asshole. <laughs> I started my career working for a small tree company that within the previous six months had to completely replace their crew. I was brand new to the industry. And on the day I started, my foreman had exactly four months more experience than I did. <laughs> there were a couple other guys on the crew as well, uh, both liberal arts dropouts like myself, with one and two months experience, respectively. The owner of the company was a competent arborist of three or four decades, but he was almost always selling work. Uh, he was almost always off selling work or putting out fires rather than on site, teaching us how to do the work he was selling. He was also a legendarily bad trainer. Um, he used to stand on the ground with a laser pointer while we were up in a tree and would grow increasingly frustrated we couldn't see the little bobbing green light on the bottom of the branch we were standing on. So shit like that. <laughs> he was also, in the way of small business owners everywhere, a profoundly cheap motherfucker who never, ever, ever wanted to spend money or throw old equipment away. Our chipper truck was of such vintage and condition that every morning we had to check the gas level by sticking a broom handle down into the tank, <laughs> like something out of Waterworld. Okay, great. Sheds full of old rusted saw change that he would never get around to sharpening, 20-year-old rakes with broken handles, you know, that sort of thing. And old rope. So much old rope. Oh, that's dangerous. Now, this some, sounds safe. There are some safety uh. facts about old rope. I don't need safety facts about old rope, it's dangerous <laughs> yeah. as shit. Rope that is used for either climbing or rigging must be replaced on a regular rotation. That rope is older than a year or two, uh, or that is showing wear and tear, should ideally be cut up and thrown away, or at very least marked clearly and used only for non-weight-bearing functions, 
such as tagline or tie downs. This is because rope degrades with use and age, and the weight rating becomes increasingly meaningless. Yeah, it's it's a biological material. Unless your rope is all made of oil, which you know some is, then like it's a, it's gonna rot, man. Uh, what you aren't supposed to do is save every length of climbing line you've ever purchased and leave it hanging in the cab of your chipper truck, unlabeled and drawing increasingly gray and indistinguishable with the years. Yeah, it's a, it, it, it's a like rearview mirror hanger. <laughs> I know this all now. I did not know this then, nor did anyone else on our crew. What we did know is that we'd been reading old uh, arboriculture news and various reference materials in the office before heading out each morning, and we decided that rigging looked cool and we should try it sometime. Not that we had been trained in rigging, mind you. We just liked the idea of dropping big chunks of trees supported by rope and wanted to try it for ourselves. <laughs> well, it came to pass that we found ourselves removing a large elm at a funeral home. The tree was growing at the back of the driveway immediately adjacent to the building with minimal space on the other side between the tree and the fence. It was a tight, constricted space which means you, you, you climb the tree and you have to take it down in small pieces that you drop down to the base of the tree. Or, you know, what competent tree crews do is rig big pieces down into the drop zone using their equipment and training. What we had been doing hmm. all morning was dropping small, piece, small pieces. Now, by early afternoon, it was hot and we cut down all our, our shade, leaving just the trunk maybe 25 feet in the air. One of my coworkers, who was a guy named Jake, who we'll call Jake, was up in the tree complaining about how hot it was. One of us got the bright idea that this is the perfect time to try out this rigging thing we've been reading about. Oh yeah, totally. We could have that tree on the ground with maybe three more cuts. <laughs> Someone fetched one of the mystery ropes from the chipper truck and pass it up to Jake. Oh no. <laughs> Jake very RIP Jake. <laughs> Jake very carefully made some choices. Watching from the ground, I experienced a sudden wave of uncertainty and nausea, which I've since learned means you put your hands up and yell for everyone to stop what they're doing and reconsider what's about to happen. <laughs> now Jake tied off a, a, the section of trunk, a six foot section that made maybe 1,500 pounds which was a perfectly reasonable section of trunk under normal circumstances. He then started his saw and began to cut. The rest of us stood on the ground holding the rigging line, which had been wrapped around an adjacent tree for support. Jake, no. The section finally began to tilt and then fell, separating from the tree. Now, friends, the rope did not even slow the trunk section down. Oh. It stopped instantly. The 1,500-pound <laughs> section of trunk, uh, trunk plummeted to the ground at the base of the tree, missing the roof of the funeral home by inches. <laughs> there was a long moment of perfect silence, and then Jake yelled, Motherfucker! in shock. <laughs> Someone cleared their throat behind us, and we turned to see the owner of the funeral home, who had wandered out to watch us work. Now, amazingly, nothing was harmed other than our boss's professional reputation. I assume he never worked for that particular funeral home again. I know I have never since made use of a rope whose provenance I was not very confident of. That's right. Yes. So, thanks for the podcast. Stay safe out there. And for the love of God, don't work for any company too small to have a safety office. 
<laughs> well, our company is three people, well, four people. So, uh, yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, there's not that many hazards in podcasting. Hmm. Well, then again, that's what they said about steamships, mm. and wow. That's a good point. Well, that was safety third. Shake hands with danger. Our next episode is on the Boston Molasses disaster. Kyle, if people want more Kyle, after six hours of Kyle, if people want more Kyle, where can they find more Kyle? Uh, well, they can uh, follow me on uh, Twitter at uh, BoldlyBuilding2. That's Boldly, as in the Star Trek, Boldly Going, uh, Boldly Building 2. So, um, or, or, yeah, uh, it's the, it's the, I'm the Titanic guy. It's a Titanic header. It's, I've got the Grover House post. It's not hard to miss. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, this has been an episode of Well, There's Your Problem. Yeah. Thank possibly you to Justin for being on. Possibly, possibly three episodes, of, episodes of Well, There's yeah. Your Problem. Thank you for, <laughs> for Kyle for coming on. Thank you for the, for Liam for, for coming on for like a two thirds of it. Yeah. Uh, I have been Alice Caldwell Kelly. We will see you in, I guess, three weeks' time, yeah. depending. Good lord. Yeah. Uh, this will be fun to edit. Mm, All right. Well, bye, everyone. Yeah, bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.